But um, and then I was like, yeah, he was waiting for what was up with this billabong. And I was like, I used to have shirts that said billabong on them. What was the deal with that? Was it surfwear? What the heck was it? You know, because like I remember it being so cool. And like I had a billabong T-shirt and thought I was the coolest kid in the sixth grade, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was a huge thing here, too. They, um, yeah, it was definitely surfwear. So the surfing culture here was huge and like from the 70s all the way through to, well, I guess they're kind of still around, but yeah, like 70s to 90s, that was a massive thing. Like I did surf lifesaving as a kid and like that was the thing that you did, like you went to the beach every weekend and like learned how to read the surf and all that sort of stuff and more, yeah, like surfwear and yeah, there were surf shops everywhere. They were like the cool clothes for kids in, I guess what you call middle school and like primary school to wear. So yeah. I'm just left sitting here thinking like, why... Like, great, but why did the surf craze extend to inland Utah? (laughs) What were we doing? Why were we wearing surfwear? Well, it's kind of encouraging to hear that, like, the cultural imperialism worked the other way a little bit. (laughs) Oh, yeah. A lot of American culture here. (laughs) Well, there was was something that people refer to as, like, the the Australian moment, right, here in in America. Yeah, right. Was it it Dundee? Was it Crocodile Dundee? Was it, I don't know, was it surfing itself? I'm not sure what the... Uh, what? Yeah, I don't know. I think there's been a few because that was when Australia kind of really, like Crocodile Dundee, definitely it was where like Australia kind of entered the American psyche, I guess, in terms of this really stereotypical like. Oh yeah. A lot of, of these crazy idiots. <laughs> on the other side of the planet. It's like Texas, crocodiles. but it's a whole country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, yeah, I feel like I don't know. I mean, I live in Australia, so I have no idea what the bloody zeitgeist is like there. But you know, there's a few. Um, moments that you kind of hear about Hugh Jackman seems to be one and Chris Hemsworth oh yeah Uh, there are these like breakout (laughs) stars that kind of bring it back to the forefront of like oh that's right Australia exists and they're all crazy down there (laughs) (laughs) yeah I wonder should I I just like get it out of my system real quick and just be like like that's not a knife this is a knife maybe the dingo ate your baby put a shrimp on the barbie have some Vegemite sandwiches (laughs) ah there (laughs) there we go now it's out I won't won't have to do any more uh, stereotypical jokes here yeah Right. Audience seems to love them. So. Yeah, so they'll probably Maybe come back. <laughs> yeah, we will still use them. I do want to ask you about some of those things, so because, like, you know, like I'm a. It's very easy as an American to be, uh, like, sort of culturally. Uh, have some cultural blinders on, you know, yeah, uh, just because like, I mean, it's so easy to just soak in what is produced in my own, it, everything around me is just like a, a mirror reflecting me back to me. And isn't that wonderful? Yeah. I don't have to think about <laughs> other countries existing or anything like that. Right. So Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to say that I've preserved my, my, uh, my natural ignorance with the purpose of being able to ask you questions. Uh, Cause you know, if I'd done research, then it wouldn't be any fun. Right. That's absolutely right. Hmm. That's actually, so I'm an editor my day job and that's actually what we always use with like expert authors and things and they kind of say like oh what would you know you know and you're like I'm (laughs) I'm I'm the audience that you need to influence if I don't understand it no one else will yeah 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 now what with that (laughs) and and what and what is the other thing because I I I tried to like google you a little bit and stuff like that do you work in conjunction with a university or is it like an NPR situation or like what (laughs) what's your uh what's your day job how does that work yeah so (laughs) 
and be our situation. I'm like, what's that? Um, yeah, <laughs> so, uh, again, you must reference my American culture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I have to try and get that in at every turn. Um, so, yeah, so I, I manage an editorial team for a university. So a lot of people see kind of university in my title. And it's, there's actually been a few um, pipers and things that I've met sort of online who, who have said, like, oh, are you a you know, you're a professor or do you teach at a university? And I, I don't. I, I have before, but I actually work for um, the marketing department of one of the big universities here mm-hmm. in Australia. Um, so, yeah, we produce like digital and print magazines and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So, yeah, content stuff. More, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, but, but now, see, I also assumed you were a professor. I thought, yeah. I mean, part, partly probably because of the persona that's been created within the Chanterank crowd, because yeah. you're like, you're like the person who knows stuff, <laughs> you know, and, and you a complete fluke, by the way, I think it's, I think it's intelligence by association <laughs> or relativity, maybe. Sorry, <laughs> well, you know, if nothing else, you've got the relativity thing for sure, but you're an intelligent person otherwise. So you, you don't have to only compare yourself to Josh and Andy <laughs> to show that you haven't intelligence um but we did when you and i were, were chatting before this in sort of the the lead up to this this conversation here we were talking about literature is that i'm trying to remember now is that what you taught when you were teaching uh kind of so i um i actually started out as a high school teacher um mm. and then i ended up um going back and retraining and publishing so i um yeah basically basically went from there into sort of more writing based stuff and then went back to uni and taught in how to edit books basically so that was where mm. I kind of started out so um yeah so a little bit of literature stuff but uh actually in terms of writing the first like full-time sort of full-blown writing that I've done was actually the book I published this year with Andrew Douglas from the Piper's Dojo so yeah that seems like a I was gonna kind of say that for later but it seems very natural to talk about it right now because you're talking about knowing about uh you know like editing books and stuff like that what what I haven't read that book yet once again let's just say I preserved my ignorance so that I could ask you about I do plan to um but uh tell me about how that happened like how did Andrew find you why what's what is the book and like who's it for is it for new pipers it it, would Stuart Little enjoy it is it is it for me you know who like who's it for what's the What's the whole yeah. thing? Talk to me about it. Hopefully everyone would enjoy it. It's one of those, um, and I don't mean to sound like a wanker who's like, buy my book. Um, but it's, Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. That's totally allowed here. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those things where, um, so Andrew and I kind of met actually through, um, <laughs> Andy will kill me if I don't say it, but through him. So um, it was this, I'm going to go off on a tangent, but it was this weird tangent. So I, I actually only ever sort of got involved in any of the tangent stuff because I started following them on social media years ago um, mm-hmm. when they first started out. So I saw their very first post. I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Started listening. Um, and then got talking to Andy through that and started taking solo lessons with him, which is how I ended up in Vegas. Oh, <laughs> and, I see. And then through that, he kind of convinced me I should join the dojo because it would be heaps better for the my piping than sort of sporadically and not very motivationally kind of taking oh, lessons so, with him every now and then. Right. <laughs> so you were taking lessons directly from him, not via his position at yeah. the dojo. Yeah, exactly. And actually it was Andy who kind of funneled me into it and said, like, I think you'd get more out of this because it's more constant, which I kind of needed. Hmm. Um, and then through that, I met Andrew and it was kind of it was actually great timing because at the same time I was sort of developing all of my professional skills. And it kind of hit this like, you know, when there's just those moments where it's like everything that seems to line up properly. And Serendipitous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, um, the pandemic hit. So that was kind of being stuck inside all the time. So I actually worked my way through, I think, probably like 80 percent of the dojo course catalog when I was just stuck inside. Way to go. Oh, 
<laughs> Way to use your time. <laughs> I know. So I was like, stuff it. If like everyone's picking up a hobby, I'm just going to get really good at bagpipes. <laughs> did you guys, did you, do you guys know about Netflix in Australia? We have this thing in America. <laughs> <laughs> we got a few of those. We got a few of those. I, <laughs> I alternated with that too. I had a lot of free time. I cannot, I cannot stress it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so no, so I, because I got really familiar with the content, um, yeah, like got to know Andrew a little bit as well through the classes and stuff like that. And he realized I had this skill set as well. So he was like, hey, like, this is something I've always wanted to do. The timing seems really right. Like, would you be interested? I'm like, sure. Like, I've got nothing better to do. And it sounds like a great project. So let's Nice. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So I guess the book itself is kind of the elevator pitch is kind of, <laughs> I guess I can say it on your show. Can I swear on? This oh, go ahead. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. I, I hope you, as long as you're not offended that I do some editing afterward, I'm not offended Absolutely if you not. just, just speak freely. Unfortunately, I, and I know that this is not common for most Americans, but most Australians, like literally like everything. Well, I know that Josh, like Josh didn't even make fun of it on the Chantaram, but like sorry, oh, is part of our vernacular. Yeah, don't worry. You know, <laughs> actually, very common. when I was, a, well, not when I was a child, my, my, when my mom went to university, she went to a conservative religious university, but had two roommates from Australia. And yeah. so even even through the filter of being conservative religious people at a conservative religious university, she still got a lot of exposure to yeah. words she'd never heard before. Actually, is that BYU? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, it's funny, actually, you mentioned that complete tangent again. I do a lot of tangents, sorry. Um, but my um, I was doing job interviews recently, so I sat on a job interview panel at the work that we have in the head of our art museum, actually worked at BYU for like 12 what? years. Yeah, he's a um, Mormon bloke, but he was, um, yeah, he just, like, is really famous in the Australian art scene, but kind of got headhunted by BYU because he Look was a Mormon this. in the community. Who right. Of, um, we we got to snatch him where we find him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get over here. You know, like, the tiniest bit about BYU just because he told me a lot about it. So yeah. it was really interesting. Kind oh, of he actually go. said it, interestingly enough, it was one of the most progressions he's ever worked for. Huh. And that may seem very, <laughs> well, very there you go. Um, strange to hear about a conservative university. But he said, yeah, during the time that he was there, they were very um, uh, big on kind of being, bringing in diverse like thought and like bringing in thought leaders from all different kind of faiths. And, well, that's and good. Areas and emerging that, leaders and stuff that, like that. That does yeah. make sense, actually. They have a lot of like sort of like residential faith leaders of other faiths and stuff like that. And it does. I, I mean, I don't far be it for me to know. Right. But I wonder to what degree there's like sort of a pendulum thing where it can only hang on one extreme for so long and then it starts yeah. swinging the other way. Absolutely. Yeah. But I just that fascinated me because you kind of you have this um probably very unfair but stereotypical idea in your mind of kind of what a religious you know a very religious university like yeah, you know, yeah. would be like and then you hear these opposite op- yeah opposing things you're like oh wow okay it's not <laughs> yeah as that as you thought yeah yeah it's, um, it's a little bit like finding out that uh, andy fusco is a good bagpipe teacher and can yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's actually plug for andy is a very good bagpipe teacher yeah um but yeah so um the what was I talking about? Oh, um, so, so I yeah, the, bo- the podcast. That's the main thing. Oh yeah, we, that's what we were talking about. Swear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so the the premise of the book that Andrew and I joked about, kind of privately and never did any publicity for it ever, was that it's like um, basically how to unpack <laughs> yourself. So if you're, <laughs> I see. If, you, if, you, if you're a piper that kind of learned in the way as so many of us did, I know I certainly did. But of kind of just going through like a community band who kind of teach a bit 
bits and pieces. So basically, if you don't grow up in sort of like a major Canadian or, you know, um, US or Scottish city, um, mm-hmm. where kind of you, you come across a master and they teach you from scratch all of the, you know, the old ways, which, you know, Andrew argues are also, you know, can be questionable and need to be challenged, which like all things do. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, but basically like, you know, you learn through a community band, you kind of learn enough to be functional in a parade setting, and then you just get chucked in a kilt and put out on parade and hope for the best and hope that you kind of learn by yourself, but you're not really given any support to right, that's... continue learning the right way. And, well, you know. to, to what degree do you end up in a situation where it's the blind leading the blind and really the totally. people who got you there, that's all the further they went themselves. And so how can exactly. they take you further? Now, yeah. I'm, I, I want to dive into a little bit of a, a, a conspiracy theory thing here that there's probably no grounds for it at all. But I listened to Andrew Douglas's interview on the Channer Rant about the book and yeah. Josh would give him no end of grief. Wait. Was it, were you on that? Was it a multi-person? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah, that's right. You remember how Josh was giving uh, Andrew no end of grief about how the chanter covers up the pee so it looks like bagpipe? <laughs> yes. And Andy was, Andrew Douglas was being kind of cagey, like, there, it, it, there's a good reason for it, Josh. Is it because of the F word? Was Andy trying to make it so there was an F right in the middle, just as like a quiet, <laughs> subtle reference to what the, the secret purpose of the book was? Let's go with that. All right. right. Once once art's out in the world, it becomes the audience's to interpret, right? That's right. That's the rules. Yep. It's no longer relevant. Them's the rules. (laughs) (laughs) Take that, J.K. Rowling. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. I'm sorry. Now I'm I'm pulling you off the rails. Carry on. (laughs) No, I love it. Um, So, yeah. So I guess the the whole idea of the book was kind of Andrew's got um, basically the whole Dojo University is framed around these five freedom phases that he kind Mm. of does. So all of his curriculum set up that way now and he runs all of his classes that way and the idea is basically that you start from a foundation it's basically the way you learn anything so you start from a foundation um, of basic skills or core skills mm-hmm. and then you kind of build up from there and so I, I know I certainly was taught this way but so much bagpipe teaching is taught where it's kind of like you learn the scale you kind of learn what the chanter looks like and then you, you start immediately on kind of like here's how you play grace note here's how you play mm-hmm. embellishments mm-hmm. and then eventually you kind of move on to playing tunes and actually as part of my bagpiping uh, teaching like I've done musical instruments before where I've learned rhythm but I never learned any rhythm as part of any of my um, bagpipe teaching up until I started with any in the dojo mm-hmm. so um so that's kind of his whole thing is that you kind of start with rhythm and then you build on layers from that and you actually don't touch embellishments until phase five Mm. um so it kind of reverses the entire way that sort of band teaching has ever and i think probably i've never learned that way but what i've heard of traditional teaching kind of does the same thing yeah Um, it's kind of exciting to hear you just talking about it because it does like i'm also a person who's like i've i've done music other than bagpipes and so it always did feel like bagpipes were like a thing apart from the rest of sort yeah. of like Western music standards, you know? Well, they're treated that way, right? Like, yeah. Even when, even when I started, it was this whole, like, I mean, what attracted me to them was kind of the novelty of them. And I'd always like the sound of them. And <laughs> to mm-hmm. be honest, I was a little bit tipsy in a pub and saw a pipe band play and thought like, Oh, that'd be fun to do. I was at a pub and thought, Hey, <laughs> that looks like fun. Um, but um, they were treated that way when I first started. So literally my tutors in the first band that I learned. And again, I think it's that whole, um, they, the pipe major of that band was very good. Um, a lot of the tutors were sort of grade three, grade two pipers, but mm-hmm. they had been taught, they, they were teaching the way that they had been taught, which was exactly the same thing. Yeah. And so they would say things like, you know, I oh, don't worry about that. You don't need to know. Or, yes. You, know, you hear that so often. Just, yeah. yeah. You know, bagpipes are just different. Don't, don't question it. Or like, I'd be sitting there because I've, I've read music before. So I'm, I'm sitting there reading it going, well, why doesn't that rhythm line up? And they'd be like, oh, don't worry about it. Pipes are just played differently. Yeah. That's, that's just how we write it. Like, right. Why isn't so, there a C sharp or C or, or F exactly. sharp written here? Oh, don't worry about that. Why do we call it A when it's not A? <laughs> 
And so I'm just, uh, I often joke with my team at work because one of them's obsessed with Harry Potter that, you know, I'm a Ravenclaw through and through. Like, I always need to know, like, what, how things work uh-huh. and, like, what. And so that, like, having someone else be that, like, the um, repository of all of that knowledge used to shock me to tears because I was just like, why, mm. why can't I know how this works so that then I can, you know, figure out how to improve it or, or you know, um, take the next step. And so. You need to be I a bit more of a happy Hufflepuff and just do what yeah. you're told. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, so um, in in finding the dojo stuff, that's that's kind of what the book's about. So hmm. it start, it's it's centered around the five phases, but the the first chapters are kind of setting up. <laughs> Basically, the intro is trying to convince you you need to do this because um, <laughs> a lot of people yeah. are very resistant to it. I think it sounds you know like an interesting um, approach and like it all makes a lot of sense. And then it, it's actually really hard. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to the hard work bit, your ego kind of kicks in and you're like, Oh, I should know how to do this by now. Or you get really embarrassed mm-hmm. that, you know, you can't clap a basic rhythm on the beat and all this sort of stuff. And I think then you kind of go like, Oh, you know, you know, you Who needs back this? To what you're comfortable with. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so the first few chapters is just kind of trying to set that up. Mm. Then we go into the freedom phases and at the end it's kind of just a bit of a rant about like all of the issues. So basically like how you can how you can translate this to your pipe band and how, how you can translate this to being a you know busy adult as we all are, kind of with other priorities. Yeah. Most of us piping is just a hobby. So mm-hmm. how do you, you know, integrate this in with your life? Um and then basically how do you free yourself from those those ego traps that kind of keep you from really embracing this and, and setting yourself free musically on the bagpipes, mm. which is as we know, one of the hardest instruments to master. So. <laughs> yeah. I like yeah. that. It's so, so, so practical in that way that, you know, that it would even acknowledge that this is a hobby for most of us, you know, cause it's like so often a lot of the really good advice that you can find, it's like, I don't know to what degree it's like they're purposefully by the people who are, who are sharing that good advice. It's probably more internal, the internal um, monologue that we all have going. Right. But it's Absolutely. like, if I'm not professional, then I'm failing kind of thing you know rather than just being like I can just enjoy the journey well I think so many of us too and you know (laughs) people make their jokes about you know um, service bands and bands that don't particularly take it seriously but Mm. like so many of us are still like having been transitioned onto the bagpipes because we are high achieving people like Mm. (laughs) like it takes a lot of work to get from a practice chanter to learn what you need to to get to playing on bagpipes and Mm -hmm. um, I think that is inherent in most pipers is that we're people who enjoy kind of taking on something hard and feeling like we've mastered it. And mm. that's one of the things that I love the most about the bagpipes is that it continues to kick your ass. Like, it doesn't matter how much you learn, there's mm. always something else that you can kind of get better at and it's a lifetime journey, which is part of what's so exciting about it. But um, yeah, that's so true. Like it's just that internal monologue of kind of I've failed and it's that fear of failure and fear of what will people think of me, which I kind of made the argument in the book that I think is almost like evolution. It's like, you know, mm. we're social creatures and we, you know, we're part of a, a, a group of um, group mentality. So like, you know, you basically early humans needed to be in a group to survive or we would have been eaten by predators. So mm. I think that that fear of social ostrac- ostracization and, and fear of, you know, being rejected because of something is actually like an inherent primal kind of drive that we want to avoid. Yeah, that so, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I, part, I think that's part of it, like on a subconscious level, but then I think a, another big part of it is obviously just that as adults, we hate being embarrassed. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those things where confronting those things about yourself is actually one of the bravest things that you can do. But a lot of people, you know, shy away from it because they're not prepared to do that. But that is the step that you need to go through to get better. So, yeah, that, it's so interesting as you talk about this sort of like idea of like sort of the so- social evolutionary biology playing into it and stuff that like mm. it in order to improve uh, playing bagpiping, like 
so many of us would be in a situation where we need to be okay with messing up and not just messing up, but messing up in front of our pipe band, which is like, it's like, it's our intensely in group. So it's like, we've set up a tribe that we really care about what they think of us. And so it's like, (laughs) it's only an even stronger drive to not let them see that we, you know, messed up. (laughs) Well, and how many times have you had, like, I hear this all the time because I'm a pipe sergeant in my band. I help um, tutor our learners and, you know, lead pipers through things. Uh, learning new tunes and things and I'll hear this all the time from pipers where we're trying to drill it out of them but you know you'll be playing through something they'll be like oh you know um I'm just going to practice it at home or like yes oh I just need to I just need to look at it a few more times slowly by myself and it's like well no let's do it all together now like everyone could benefit from that yeah even getting some people to admit that or to play publicly in front of everyone one-on-one like that's been a huge step because Mm. previously in pipe bands I've played with you know (laughs) the pipe major will just play with everyone playing around the table you never kind of pick anyone's you know, individual playing a part and then you just keep going. But, you know, I think we'd, we'd made the point in the book that kind of, you know, the, it doesn't matter who the weakest link is, like everyone's as weak as that link. So mm. you need to you need to bring everyone's standard up because you're always going to fall down to the, you know, the um, lowest common denominator for one of a better word. And that's not meant derogatorily or anything, but like, sure, sure. like that person's playing is always going to be what pulls you down in a competition and that sort of stuff. So it's not about trying to point them out and make them embarrassed about it. It's trying to bring them up and make sure that everyone else is on board to, to support them to get mm. there. So, yeah. And you know, it's, it's a funny thing that like, you know, not to get too uh woo woo to uh, what, like what's, what's the word for this? Like non uh, non tangible here, but I just, I can't help thinking of the fact that like ever since I was a small child, I know that this is kind of weird. And, and if, if people who have real disabilities can definitely think I'm a terrible person for this. Cause it's a weird, it's a weird thing to think. But when I was a child, I always thought it would be so cool to be in an accident where I would lose an arm or a leg or an eye or something like that. Because of course I assumed that the technology existed to give me a buy a bionic, bionic arm yeah. or leg or eye and it would just be so much cooler right you know and but it, it sticks with me because i do think to myself like if i lost say my my arm then it, you could say that that's now a weakness it's the weakest part of my body is this missing arm right but then if you put a bionic arm on it it's actually stronger than what it was before yeah. you know and i wonder if it's if it's too silly to sort of draw that into this idea that like if we're willing to recognize within the pipe band like if we are one body we're one thing if we're willing to recognize where there are difficulties it's not to make any one person feel bad but if we yeah. all work together to strengthen that that difficult part that that person who's having a hard time with rhythm if we all work together to improve their sense of rhythm everybody's going to improve and it's like that could become your bionic arm you know it yeah. could actually really it's make really a big difference yeah. is it a good analogy well thank yeah, you I, love it. <laughs> I was scared diving into it <laughs> sitting um, here no, take, no, no, take no, a no. note of the timestamp so i know where to cut stuff out later <laughs> <laughs> exactly this could all go south yeah out. um but um yeah and i mean i'm not disabled either obviously so you know <laughs> If there's anyone disabled out there that we're um, upsetting, you know, obviously take it with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I, I think that's that's a really interesting concept. And I think every kid's kind of thought that when they've seen, you know, a superhero movie or you see like, you know, mm-hmm. Iron Man, for example, is one of the first like big Marvel ones mm-hmm. where, you know, he copped shrapnel to the heart, but then overcame it with yeah. intelligence. Mm-hmm. You know, he's one of the only Marvel superheroes that doesn't have an inherent superpower. His superpower mm-hmm. is his brain. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's replaced it with this thing that's made him super strong and, and has created the suit and all this sort of stuff. And you just, you just think, yeah, that is inspiring in a different way where it's mm. kind of you know you want this other part but yeah it's so true about the pipe band thing with um 
and I think that's in, an interesting point about the difference between people who are very good solo pipers mm. and people who make good band pipers because mm-hmm. it's being on board for that. I've heard a lot of pipers before who end up kind of quitting bands or, you know, you see them shuffling around bands. <laughs> We've got a couple here that we call band whores who kind of just like, you know, make their way around a whole bunch. Yeah, they've got seven or eight um, kilts in their closet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's often, it's an ego thing where kind of they sure. um, think they're better than the whole, but, or, you know, they might be seeking something different for themselves, which is fine too, but... Um, but that they they like the the result, but they don't want to put in the work to see others succeed. Yeah, so, and that's what I love about pipe bands is that community focus and that you know you do build a community, but you're also helping other people to achieve a goal in the thing that you love to do. Mm-hmm. So, like you get to see people improve and you get to see them you know love learning it and then they they catch the bug for it and they see that it can be easier and they kind of want to do it in and of themselves and there's nothing more rewarding to me than when you're kind of working with someone and you see them start to take off on their own like they're asking you questions about hey I noticed this thing happening when I was practicing like how can I do such and such or like you know um they come up with like oh I was listening to this tune I'm interested do you have the sheet music like I want to learn it for myself and like I just love when it kind of takes hold like that where it's not that initial honeymoon phase, which all learners have, I think, where they're kind of fascinated by the instrument and mm-hmm. the, the culture and all that sort of stuff. But it's like when they have that almost that second wind of kind of they're stuck in the doldrums and then they pick it up again. I'm like, oh, I just love that moment. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm with you entirely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought years ago, like I, I have an unhealthy ego usually like i think too i think too highly of myself i and i think (laughs) i'd like to think that i'm becoming more aware of it as i get older and i'm knocked on my butt over and over again basically right but i i fully expected (laughs) when i was younger emotional maturity yeah yeah by like forced to have it you know not by choice right (laughs) but uh yeah yeah exactly (laughs) i i think that when i was younger i would have expected that it would be an unpleasant experience to see someone who i had taught to play to see them playing better than i can play in any aspect yeah. you know yeah but it's happened whole, um, many times and it's never not wonderful it's so yeah. it's just so exciting it's a wonderful experience well and i love seeing too like the milestones that people hit so like it took me i think like probably 12 months to go from starting to learn onto the pipes mm. we've got a guy who's just joined our band for example we call him the pipeinator <laughs> <laughs> the pipe major and i have um i kind of always kind of you know, having a few jokes about like, oh my God, I can't believe he's so yeah. <laughs> motivated. But this guy will literally play play pipes, like on pipes, full pipes for like an hour a day. Wow. More if he can manage it. Like his, his <laughs> wow. wife has started making comments about like, this is not healthy. <laughs> like, <laughs> he'll sit on chant it. But having said that, like he's come so far so quickly. So he started um, just at the end of the lockdowns for us last year and he's already onto pipes and he's learnt, you know, most wow. of our repertoire, which is insane. Like, That's fast. amazing. Yeah. And it's just because he, yeah, he's caught the bug and he's just so into it. But his enthusiasm is quite infectious. Like mm-hmm. so, And you get a few people like that in your band and everyone else kind of gets a bit of a buzz from it too, which helps yeah. the group. So it's true. The dynamics yeah. are so interesting that way. Yeah. Yeah. It can kind of reignite fires that have maybe started to die down in, in some of us. Yeah. Well, there's a bit of that FOMO aspect that creeps in. Oh, yeah. Where I think they kind of see, like, oh, such a, and it's the ego hit for them too, where they see like, oh, such and such has kind of learned that way yeah. faster than I did. Yeah. I only started last year. So Hang on a yeah, sec. Yeah. So it's good that way too. Yeah. Now, now, so in the book, when it comes to like, you, you mentioned like there's some ranting here and there and stuff like that, yeah. like, you know, and I don't mean to double up on what, what other interviewers have already asked you about Camille, no, but, but you know, to what degree is your, um, 
would you call it a narrative voice? To what degree is your voice the one that I am getting out of the book as I read it? And to what degree is it Andrew's? Is it a mix of the two or is it, you know, like what's the situation it's, there? Yeah, it's definitely me. So it's, it's interesting you say that actually, because I, I think probably towards the later chapters is where you probably get a bit more of my voice because Andrew mm. kind of let me have a bit more free reign. Um, and I say let, like it was very much a collaborative process, but like mm-hmm. he, um, it's his book. So the book is written in his voice. So it's in first person speaking as Andrew, because a lot of the book is told through his uh, memoirs and like stories about his life which mm. he very much wanted it to be so it was Andrew's vision for the book and I do have to say like it's Andrew's book and mm-hmm. I helped him write it basically so he very kindly called me a co-author um, but like the whole thing is his philosophy it's his ideas and kind of we we collaborated on it and I think produced a better result which I think he'd agree with but mm-hmm. um, the idea behind the book is is basically that it's sort of it's a bagpiping book that is meant to be inspirational it's meant to give you sort of like a blueprint for how you can improve your piping but it's also meant to be something that you could actually sit down and enjoy reading sort of so his his whole um like visual that he wanted was kind of like that you could um sit on the couch with your dog in front of the fire which is a foreign concept to me as an Australian <laughs> like, <laughs> like late at night and kind of it would be something that you would reach for so like it's something that you would enjoy picking up and kind of reading um, oh well well, well here Camille um it, for for you for you folks out there in Australia uh, try to imagine this is the kind of thing that you could you could sit and read while you wait for your Billy, Billy, Billy to boil. I'm, I'm looking up the, I'm looking up the lyrics again here. What is yeah, it? Well, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Waiting for our Billy's to boil in front of the billabong. That's right. That's right. Sorry, carry on. Uh, yeah. No, no. So, so it's his, it's his, it's his thing yeah, and you got to so, work with it, but we hear more of you toward the end. I think so. So, mm. so it's my writing style throughout, definitely. And like Andrew, the way we started was kind of that um, I was going to come on as like an editor, and so Andrew was going to write the whole thing, and then I'd help him sort of edit and and publish it, and you know, um, produce it. So we we self published. So we uh, mm. I did all of the layouts and things as well. But we. Um, when he started, he wrote a couple of chapters and as we got stuck into it, we kind of realized that it was actually probably going to be a lot easier if he just sort of gave me the outline of what he wanted to write and then I would write it and then we could kind of go back and forth because we Mm. seemed to get a better result that way. Um, and that way he could kind of feed into more to the ideas and and less to the writing because that was more my strength, Mm. um, when it came to this style of writing. So Andrew's an excellent, um, e-learning, um, author, but when it comes to this sort of stuff, he was quite new to it. So mm. I guess it was kind of just trying to find our strengths and work to them as the, as the process kind of went on. So, um, but what we'd had in a lot of the earlier chapters is that like he would pick up things that I didn't even notice I was writing in. So a lot of Australianisms, like a lot of, um, I tend to tell stories a lot through sort of um, idioms and analogies and yeah. so he would kind of ro- roll those back a little bit and sound a bit more like him. So um, <laughs> like Camille, you've got to write this in American. This doesn't make yeah, sense. Pretty much. It really was though. He was like, I would never say this. I'm like, yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> but I have no idea because I'm like you, I've got my cultural blinkers on when it comes to that. So I know mm. a little bit about American culture, but not much. Yeah. And American culture is so diverse and so different state to state, right? And even city to city in some places. So yeah. um, so trying to sound like a, you know, New York man, <laughs> uh, <right. laughs> Australian woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It was a little bit difficult at times, but, um, but no, we got there. So, but in the first chapters, it was kind of, it was meant to be him sort of instructing the reader. So it was very much his voice that comes through there in terms mm. of like, here's why you should do it. Here's my expertise. Like here are stories that will convince you. And our, our hope in doing it and what a lot of readers have kind of fed back to us already is that we wanted people to feel validated. So we wanted people to see problems that they're having in their own piping and their own frustrations kind mm. of reflected back at them and be like, wow, like I feel seen. <laughs> like, mm. And this, and this is something that could help me. So, you know, hopefully we've kind of achieved that, but, um, 
more towards the end. So the freedom faces make up the bulk of the, the middle chapters, which is kind of the actual blueprint for kind of how to do this process. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of stepped out with the, you know clear analogies and clear examples of kind of how people can do it. But towards the end is where we get more into those sort of philosophical chapters. And I think that's uh, chapters. Sorry, and I think that's where he kind of um, Freudian slip there. Um, I think that's where he he kind of just let me kind of go to town. So for a couple of those chapters, he actually, the pipe band one's very much him because it's all all about his sort of experiences in um, RMM, uh, Mm -hmm. like the Canadian bands growing up and kind of into Inverary and stuff like that. But um, the the final chapters are are more sort of um, rants, I suppose, about the culture and kind of what it's like to be in lower grade bands. And for those, he kind of just gave me some dot points of the ideas that he wanted to cover. And basically, I just read the whole thing. And <laughs> he he, fed it to he didn't say something like, hey, Camille, I don't know what it's like to be in lower grade bands. So no. will you just go ahead and, <laughs> and take care of that? <laughs> you obviously do. So will you just do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he was very diplomatic about that. Though. But I mean, he has played in lower grade bands. Yeah, so yeah. I'm just like, joking. Oh, yeah, but, but he, um, yeah, so it was just funny. Like he basically just realized that I was going to be able to <laughs> to find enough fun to just go to town and then yeah. come back in and try and roll me, ramp me back a bit. So it was funny actually that in the first few chapters he was going on a bit and I was having to kind of edit him back. And then towards the end, I, I was just going to town on, you know, basically just having a rant about all of this stuff that's an issue that we need to fix. And yeah. He's like, uh, this might have gone too far. And maybe this is too nasty. And like, <laughs> I <laughs> see. we need to not be so harsh about this. So thing. He's I think readers back. might get offended if he did. Uh, like, yeah. So yeah. Um, and it was funny, actually, we had a couple of, um, <laughs> speaking of swearing, we had a couple of swear words in there. And I think in the end, we actually only have one and it's part of a quote and that we kind of refer back to. But... Oh, then you can justify it as long as it's in quotes. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly. a trick. That's a trick that, that I knew as a kid growing up. As long as you put air quotes in the air with your fingers, you could say anything. Yeah, you can just get away with it. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but, um, it's funny actually, cause we'd sent it to a couple of sensitivity readers in the U S and also to, um, a bunch of like expert readers. So we sent it to, um, you know, Richard Parks and, you know, a couple mm. of big names that kind of Andrew knew of, and, you know, big rab and the Tantran boys and stuff like that, just to try and get some reader quotes and some feedback on if we were on the right track. And, um, yeah, it's funny. A couple of the sensitivity readers came back and just said like, Oh, I think this actually cheapens the book. And I was like, really? Oh. I think in the Australian market, it would strengthen it. But again, it's just proof that I don't know, you know, cause we find people who swear very, um, you know, it's a, it's a form of um, relationship building really. Like yeah. if you swear in front of someone, it means that you trust them enough to kind of, you know, like a show of authenticity or something. Yeah, right? exactly. And yeah. like genuineness is such a big part of our culture that yeah. like, like that's a, that's, the big thing like if you do that it means you like someone uh yes so Gen- genuineness that, like, oh, that's uh that. yeah that's 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 not a thing for us camille it's, <laughs> <laughs> i know it is for some americans and it's just it's <laughs> interesting consuming your media consuming your culture and then seeing how that compares to the, to who i meet over there and it's just yeah. Um, yeah it's always been a very interesting it's one of the reasons i love travel because you just get to challenge so many assumptions that you have oh uh, yeah yeah <laughs> now, now, speaking of which, when you when you have traveled around, have you ever done bagpipe specific traveling? Like, have you ever gone like gone to Scotland for the Worlds or anything like that? Yeah, um, actually, it's interesting you say that because pretty much all of my traveling has been bagpipes. Oh, has it really? So you're glad you came into this bagpiping stuff, huh? Yeah, as well. It was one of the things that drew me to it. Actually, it was kind of um, the band that I started playing with um, did biannual. Um, into international trips and mm. they weren't by no means sort of a, so they were grade four which for us is um oh, i think that's like your grade grade five grade four because we didn't have a grade four b at that stage mm. um so very, very low grade band um you know quite competent players and they but their focus was very much on sort of pub playing and festival playing and that sort of thing 
and um and a lot of fun for that reason but one of the things that i wanted to play with them for is that they went on this biannual overseas trip so basically if you contributed to band gigs you got a subsidized fare overseas so mm. <laughs> um I don't so you, you learned to play bagpipes for the travel perks <laughs> absolutely well it's one of one of the very strong reasons actually the main reason that i started joining this is a very australian thing i think but was that they promised us free beer at the lesson <laughs> oh no seriously <laughs> yes you really free, free, free lessons and free beer <laughs> so i was like okay sold i'll be there every week all right <laughs> okay, we referenced The Simpsons when we were chatting before. That that Australia episode is it will forever be one of my very favorites. You remember the scene when Marge and Homer are sitting there and, and Marge tries to order a coffee and the Australian guy's like, beer? She's like, coffee, beer? <laughs> coffee, <Yeah>. beer? <laughs> so that's real oh, then, right. huh? It's totally real. Okay. <laughs> I, I generally like to challenge stereotypes, but no. Actually, Sometimes no, they're say, bang on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of coffee, though, and I'm just going to put in a plug and I can feel Andy Fusco rolling his eyes from here, but um, I cannot rate any of the coffee I've tried in America. <laughs> Our coffee here is, is far superior, so you'll have to come down. Oh, really? Yeah. No, but, but so what, is Andy going to be, why would Andy be offended by that? I feel oh, like. I just, I just <laughs> about it every day. I was in Las Vegas. Oh, just so that it was I went to the visit. swill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went to visit in um, 2019. I was there for two and a half weeks for the Vegas games. And just right, like Exploring right. the area and stuff. And so every, and you know, being Vegas, we did go out drinking a lot. And so I'd yeah. wake up the next morning sort of. <laughs> To, yeah. to your cup of dirty water. Yeah, pretty much. And just, <laughs> just getting frustrated that every coffee place I tried just did no way. So so what? Yeah. Now, now you know that Besides. next time you come to Vegas, you're going to just bring a bunch of, of uh, dry roast packs in your yeah, suitcase exactly. so you'll be ready. <laughs> <laughs> just bring my own. Come prepared, yeah. I just kept, because uh, Josh kept threatening to make me a good coffee, but he never tried. And I'm, I'm still convinced that maybe he just, um, just, just couldn't, yeah, was, well, was just afraid that he might not live up to it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I do feel like Australia has better coffee, better coffee. And that's probably yeah. a very arrogant statement. So you'll all have to come down here and prove me wrong. Well, it's, it's, I, I feel like probably everybody has something that they get to claim, right? Everybody gets, yeah. everybody gets something. So if you want that, you can have that. That's fine with yeah. me. I mean, you also have the best Vegemite, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> the only Vegemite. Yeah, exactly. Vegemite's such a funny thing. I got like, I get it because it is an acquired taste, but it's something that we're raised on. So I guess it's like, you know, um, people who are from Southeast Asia or India or whatever, sort of being very, you know, resilient to um, hot foods. And that's uh, yeah. thing. for you guys, yeah. South America too, I guess. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, like Vegemite is just such a staple here. Like, I'm actually not joking. Every time I travel overseas, the first thing I do when I get home, to the point where when I got back from my last trip, my sister had actually stocked my fridge with it because I'd left it no in way. the fridge. And she'd done it to help me. But it's a Vegemite and butter sandwich on um, white bread. Really? <laughs> yeah, I crave it. It's like, another thing, Camille, that I would have thought was an in inaccurate, unfair stereotype. Yeah, that one is spot on. Like, wow, I mean, we really? do. Like, we feel, like uh, Vegemite on toast is like a classic... Um, you know, and it's in that, um, what is it, that Men at Work song? You yeah, know? yeah. Um, she just, like, I said, yep. do you speak my language? She's yep. like, give me a Vegemite sandwich. Vegemite sandwich, so yep. It's just part of, it's just, yeah, most Australians, it's, it's a thing for us. So Put it into little squeezy pouches for your babies and all that. Just yeah, exactly. Raise them right. <laughs> well, see, and this is the thing I think people do wrong. Like, you don't eat Vegemite straight. It's kind of like saying I love vodka and then drinking it straight. And, like, you can get to that point. But, like, people who do that first off, like, if you do that in front of an Australian where you just scoop it out of the, like, you know, jar and eat it straight. An Australian will make a face at you like, 
You meant I to see. have it sparingly. <laughs> I see. I see. We must treat it as a garnish. So, yes, so exactly. these these experiences that we Americans have, where it's like, hey, I just I bought a tube of Vegemite. You want to try it? And you squeeze it into a spoon, and then just eat yeah. a spoonful of it. We're not doing it right. Is that what you're no, saying? Exactly. <laughs> I see. <laughs> just trialing it without the uh, without the right context. Okay. But, um, it's funny. Like it's got so many different um, like cheese and Vegemite sandwiches, and, like um, peanut butter and Vegemite. Some people like and really, you know, butter and Vegemite. So you usually got to have something to cut it with because yeah. otherwise it's way too it's made from anyone anyone who's listening to your show who doesn't know Vegemite is basically it was actually a um industrial waste product so of course it, it was, was. <laughs> yeah so, and then they, it was one of those classic things where it was like a different purpose and then they realized hey like we could we could package this so I think it was actually during I'm probably just making like talking about it out of my house now but they um the the legend goes that they kind of you know um during the depression era realized that they could use it as an additional food product and then mm. marketed it. And it was like one of Australia's best marketing campaigns. So, you know, happy little Vegemiters was like the little marketing <laughs> campaign to try and get kids to eat this industrial waste product, which is basically <laughs> just like a very yeasty, it's kind of like something, there's a lot of like veg, Vegemite recipes that you can do with um, like uh, stews and roasts and things like that. So it's almost like a, um, oh, what would you call it? Like a stock or something that you would add. Oh, you know, sure, add sure, sure. That makes like, sense. Yeah. To make it really, because it's very salty and yeah. like very thick and, um, but it's, um, yeah, just really, really good. <laughs> yeah. I once, I once as a child popped a square of bullion, like, like soup, uh, like, a uh, uh, like chicken. Um, no, I can't think of the word, <sighs> you know, a like little, stock. yeah, yeah. The little, yeah. the little, the solid the ones that you would drop. Yeah. yeah the yeah, concentrate yeah. ones. Yeah. I popped one of those in my yeah. mouth thinking it was a chocolate Ooh, or something and it was rough. <laughs> But it did kind of reminisce in my, it kind of connects in my mind with my experience eating a spoonful of Vegemite. So it makes sense that you can yeah. make soup out of it. So you like smell colors with that thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's like this, like, yeah. Sensory over. Yeah. Now I, I pulled you off the book though, Camille. I wanted you to have oh, a, a full chance to uh, like, you've convinced me, you know, I'm, I'm going to go buy my copy. So where should we be getting them? Is there a better place for you and Andrew? Like it, does Amazon take a cut? So you'd rather we buy it somewhere else or no, like what's the deal there? Yeah. It's actually, it's funny because we, we talked about so many distant, different distribution models when we first started. And the first thing we talked about was like, oh, we should, you know, initially it was, hey, let's just like use this as a lead gen for dojo stuff. And then we realized like, oh, this is actually a book people would probably buy in their own right. We should try and sell it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked at Amazon and stuff like that. We actually realized that the bagpiping community is so niche that that's probably not the best approach. So mm-hmm. Andrew's actually set up his own e-commerce and we're not offering it on any of the platforms at the moment. So mm-hmm. um, so you can buy it from some brick and mortar stores. I think Andrew has been supplying it to a couple of the Canadian ones and a few across the US and stuff like that. So if you've got a local bagpiping supplier who stocks it, like they've probably got a couple of copies in stock. Um, but if you go online uh, to bagpipefreedom.com, um, Andrew's like classic marketing brain. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so he set that up and yeah, it's, if you go to bagpipefreedom.com, you can just buy a copy from there and he runs sales from time to time too. So if you sign up for the dojo mailing list, um, every few months, he kind of runs a, I think he did one for labor day for you guys mm. a little while ago and stuff like that. And the, the plan is kind of, yeah, that every now and then there'll be sales on it too, but otherwise it's just available. Um, and it's just print on demand. So when you purchase a copy, it gets um, printed and shipped straight from the distributor. So mm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure there's a link for that in the uh, in the notes as well. If that's awesome. not easy yeah, enough to remember, feel free to just go down and click on it. Anybody wants to buy it. And I, you know, I I feel like I'd like to ask you more stuff about books. Yeah. Like, to what degree is your like you're working in in digital media and stuff like that as well, right? But like, do yeah. you what part of it do you love? Do you like the formatting? Do you like coming up with a cover? Do you like producing content? Do you prefer yeah. editing? What What do you really really love about this kind of work? 
Um, is it <laughs> is it wanky to say all of it? Um, no, that's fine. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I um, I love I love creation like um and it's funny actually because like I I've always called myself an editor and to be honest like in uni and and previously I'd gravitated towards that so um I preferred to edit other people's work than sort of to write my own but as mm. I've started I think it's about having ideas and inspiration and that sort of stuff and working with other people I think that's something I've learned about myself over the last few years is kind of I get the most inspiration out of being around other people, which is really odd for me because I'm an intro massive introvert. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> spending too much time around people um, very much drains me of energy. But um, when I'm, you know, reading other ideas and diverse thought and kind of I love consuming knowledge and, and interpreting it and like thinking about how it applies to other things that I know and how that can help me to learn new things and think in different ways and change the way that I think and kind of challenge the way that I think. I think that's such a, a powerful um, thing to be able to do. Um, and so like that's something that I love but you can do that in all aspects of of the writing editing and publishing process so mm. um so I my background is in print media so um and print content so I've produced you know magazines and books and things like that I used to work for a textbook publisher I worked for Penguin for a bit like ooh, Penguin so yeah big so deal I've done a bit of bit of trade publishing stuff mostly in sort of editorial assistant stuff and then I moved into development editing and structural editing for um Pearson which is which at the time was their textbook off off cider now they're mm. a learning company um, but then, yeah, got it more into sort of educational publishing and then into this corporate sort of magazine-y stuff. So, mm. and a lot of the stuff we do now is very short form article content. So it's, it's interesting cause like I probably consume, I reckon I read probably about between 10 and 20,000 words a day, like just, Good just heavens. In, yeah, just in like emails and stuff. And so it's funny, actually, I've gotten really into audiobooks lately because I read so much for work. Give but, your eyes a break. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm reading, you know, articles from, you know, authors on my team or, um, you know, content that we're considering or other places where you're kind of reading on similar issues and re doing research and things like that so um as well as just emails like the volume of emails that you, <laughs> you yeah. have to kind of read and write you know in a, in a day job now is ridiculous yeah. um which actually as another tangent is something that i don't think any of us acknowledge enough which is that like life is busier now <laughs> it's just so much like, yes. you know, our, par our parents <laughs> and their parents you know our grandparents kind of often complain about so i'm 35 but like I, I feel even to my bones exhausted now to, to a level that I don't think my parents have ever felt before because they've never worked in a, you know, corporate job where you're consuming this much content all the time. And it like your brain's not built for this much information yeah. intake. Which Take is that, exciting, boomers. So much. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the millennials ain't the snowflakes. You don't, yeah. know, you don't know what it's like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it's just it, like our, our brains are constantly reacting to having more and more content now that we've got, you know, scroll media and, you know, yeah. social feeds and all that sort of stuff. Like but we're taking in so much information constantly and, you know, in uni and stuff, you know, you learn through advertising modules and stuff that I think it takes between like, you know, 10 and 20 touch points of something before it enters your psyche. I think mm. it's actually probably going to be way higher in future because for something to actually permeate that constant noise of information yeah. is going to be so much harder. So or have to tie really cleverly to something that you really care about. So Yeah. Um, Did, have you ever read Fahrenheit four fifty one? Yes. <laughs> Do you remember that part when um is it it's Guy Montag, right? He's the main character. Yep. When he's on the train and he's trying to remember something that he's read, but it's like all he can hear is this advertisement for like a toothpaste. Yeah. And it yeah. keeps like breaking through and he almost gets it but then it breaks through again and stuff like yep. that. Yeah, that, I wasn't, so, that's, I was just making my brain come through my mouth there. I'm sorry. There was nothing. <laughs> I have nothing else to say. Carry on, Camille. Sorry. No, it's, it's so true though. It's like the, the advertising and advertising is getting so much more clever these days. Like, so, mm. 
so like I actually really like it when because I work in you know marketing tangentially through content but like I love when you kind of um, see someone doing something really clever because it's so not easy because like no marketing is easy these days but like mm. it's, it's very straightforward I think to kind of just apply a standard comms or marketing plan to a, a product or something that you're trying mm. to sell yeah but to think in a really novel way where you're actually breaking the fourth wall almost of kind of social media and kind of the way that people are taking in information and content these days is really mm. it takes a different way of thinking <laughs> yeah. to do that um, and you see things like you know you'll be scrolling and you'll see an ad that looks like a, a social media feed but then someone reaches through it and it's almost like that ring moment of like <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> what's the name? That and that's and it? that one in particular is excellent because i don't know if it's only me but i was scarred permanently by that yeah. movie and so that would yeah. has a real effect <laughs> really talk about grabbing the reader by the lapels that that yeah, does it for 100%. sure <laughs> so and you see things like that in the feed and you're like whoa that's clever like yeah I love when you see those little moments that just like actually shock you like it's which is hard to do these days i guess yeah it's interesting yeah. Um, but anyway, sorry, I forgot what we were talking about. Well, let's see. Uh, you, you, you read a lot and actually, and you were telling me about how much you consume there. And I, and it did make me want to ask you like what we talked a little about Lord of the Rings when we were, when we were messaging back and forth and stuff like that. And you, you did teach in, did you say in secondary school? In prim- I'm, I'm trying to remember, how do, you, how do you say it in Australia? Is it still high school uh, there? High, high school, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Whew. Yeah. Don't have to remember all these it's terms. Nothing, nothing in Australia really makes sense. So we have primary school and high school. Okay, yeah. Primary just school a, and secondary school. Right. <laughs> nope, just going to mix everything all together in yep, a big pot. Exactly. Add some Vegemite. It's delicious. <laughs> exactly right. Pretty much life. You just but, summed it up. Yep. What were you teaching there? Was it English that you were teaching there or was it something else? Yeah, so English, um, ancient history, modern history. So, Whoa, cool. But it's what's interesting is so I had never studied modern history at uni, so I did ancient medieval history because I'm a massive nerd. And as you say, like I was a massive Tolkien buff during um Oh yeah. And stuff is like he that, not the so. king of the all medievalists? Like if you're interested yeah, in exactly. medieval stuff at all, you gotta read Tolkien, yeah. Yeah, he's the grandfather of the bloody genre. Yeah. But um he um or fantasy anyway, but he um yeah, so uh I like studied ancient history medieval history in english um mostly because i actually started doing archaeology mm. um because you know <laughs> you see indiana Jones, you kind of think like yeah i'm gonna be an archaeologist this is great and then of course i, I kind of got like two semesters in and you know taken classes in latin and stuff like that as well and i was like when oh, do we learn to crack a whip yeah exactly like, <laughs> well i had all these grand visions i think of like how cool it would be to work as an archaeologist but i hadn't actually done any like uh, yeah. research into what the practicalities of that would be and i think after like half a year of kind of you know, metering out, you know, very specific centimeters on a bloody dig site. Yeah. And kind of looking at, and I was like, oh, this is like a science thing. <laughs> I don't actually enjoy this, uh, which is not true. I did really enjoy it, but I just went, oh, this you, is you need like, you need like, uh, like 18th century archaeology where like this, like Jacksonian yeah. era, when well, you can just like go buy a bunch of land and dig it up yeah. willy nilly, however you like, you know, exactly. make up a story about whatever you find and you're famous. And then just chuck it in a museum. And That's right. Yeah. To the people that originally owned. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, you must yeah. take it away from the people to whom it belongs. Yeah. Yeah. That's rule one. Rule <laughs> yeah. one of um, rule number one. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, no. What was interesting about it, I think, is that like I, I kind of got st- stuck into it and just realized like, oh, this 
there's not much in Australia that you mm. can do with archaeology that's not related to Indigenous people, which actually is funny because at the age I am now, I'm actually really interested in Indigenous culture. But in Australia, our Indigenous cultures are not what well, were not at the time taught in our school curriculum at all. So I knew next to nothing about them and they, I wasn't really excited about them. So I was kind of like, mm-hmm. well, I don't really want to, you know, study for, because at that stage you had to do not just undergrad, but a master's and then basically be studying a doctorate to be able to make any money sort of mm-hmm. as an archaeologist. And I was like, I don't really want to be doing that while I'm, you know, traipsing over, you know, <laughs> like palm and, you know, power shells in Northern Territory and that sort of thing. So <laughs> it was either move to Europe, which I didn't want to do at the time or, um, you know, study something different. So that's when yeah. I got into history. But um, yeah, so I taught in English and history in high school. And then once I got stuck into high school teaching the system here, yeah, I actually love teaching, but I found a better home for myself as an adult, a teacher of adults at university. So sure. I went back and did my master's and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, went into publishing there so but I studied literature and stuff at uni and Mm. taught in literature in high school but yeah so like as a as a child do you remember the first time you started like of your own volition because you wanted to read like what you were seeking out was there anything in particular that like you really loved like that got you hooked on the written word yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've always been a voracious reader. I think, you know, it's that classic thing of like, oh, I think my parents were the ones who got me into it. But mum and dad always had books around. Like, I just remember we always had bookshelves full of books. And it was that whole immersion thing of like, you'd see dad reading or, you know, you'd, you'd be getting through it. And I've got um, two older brothers and a younger sister. And so my older brother and I used to read the same books. And so you'd get stuck into these like, you know, young adult series and things mm. like that. And I just couldn't get enough. Like, it, it was early obsession for me. It was kind of the animal series or, you know, the goose. Animorphs, like, yeah. <laughs> that sort of stuff where you kind of, they come out monthly too which I think yep. was like very clear there was that whole scholastic book fair thing which we definitely had down here as well but like, yep I got my parents they, stuck in the goosebumps thing yeah <laughs> they were <laughs> stuck paying right. for that for years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting like I, I always gravitated to fantasy and science fiction so yeah. um like you know girls I was friends with in school and boys too but like we're into sort of babysitters club and oh sure um you know like um, saddle club and all that sort of stuff but I always gravitated towards these really like epic fantastical kind of stories and to be honest I'm I'm not really sure why like um it was just something that always interested me more was just this idea of escape and I learned I think quite early on that they were analogies for everyday life and I just Mm. loved how clever that was like that it didn't have to be a real story that it could be a fake story but it was like Mm. an analogy for social issues or, or whatever. Right. And it, like I just loved how clever that was and how many layers there were to it and how much you could do with that and how much really that science fiction and fantasy authors can get away with that you couldn't yeah. at the time say in <laughs> like, it, like if you take animals, for example, like it's, it's bonkers that that story was ever put to print because it's effectively like these traumatized <laughs> kids who are basically forced into an intergalactic war and yeah. go through horrific shit. Like yeah. when you look at the actual scenarios that they put into the choices that they have to make as teenagers, like they're, they're basically war veterans by 16 yeah. and with, with all of the like, K, um, K, is it K Applegate? Yeah. Doesn't shy away at all from like showing the horrors of that and the psychological right. effect yeah. that, that has on the characters. Like, and it gets real dark towards the end of that series. And, like because it had a cute like animated front cover every time. Like, it's good for like, kids. Parents are just like yeah, yeah give it to the kids. This is a kids book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder. My wife and I have had this discussion often when we're like looking at uh, books as well as movies and stuff that we watched when kids or read when kids. And like now we've got kids who are like our oldest is about nine years old now, and he's quite the reader himself. And so it's like, oh yeah, I loved this when I was a kid. And then we pause and think. <laughs> But why was I ever allowed to read it? That yeah. that's like as an adult looking back, it's like no, that it was that's not <laughs> age appropriate at all. There's some heavy <laughs> stuff in there, you know. And I think it's 
too. Like it was that whole like um like you know sexual panic thing that was the thing when we were mm. kids of like you know don't don't let the kids think they can have sex. They're like you know don't talk about anything sexual, but you can have horrific <laughs> violence. You, that's right. And, that's right. And like like a lot of blood. Like, yeah, absolutely. And it's like isn't that way worse? Like, yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> it's, it's so like true. Moral panic, kind of you know, and very um, religiously driven. I think, but like very kind of like you know. Oh, you know, you know, we could go into it for days, but like this very, you know, you must be very save yourself for marriage and be very pure and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So any any deviation that we have from that, like you know, would be atrocious and you know it's going to corrupt our kids. And it's like, hang on, right, <laughs> right, it's horrific. But and not even the the violence wasn't even the worst. But I think it was more the psychological torture. Oh, sure, like, yeah, yeah. There's a there's an animals book where one of the characters gets captured and like is tortured, but then the torturer realizes that she can use pain, uh, sorry, pleasure. And the difference between that and the pain is what will actually break him mentally. This, mm. Again, this is a book for young kids yeah. like, <laughs> that this is being written in. Um, and it was just stuff like that or looking back and you just think like, wow, yeah. <laughs> how was this ever published? And yeah. that, like, you know, 13, 14 year olds, this is acceptable for them, you know. But so, yeah, and so, but, but, and, and I don't have an answer for this, Camille, but I'm curious, do, do you have a thought on this? Like, is this now, is what we're experiencing as, as 30 something year olds looking back, is it, is it, is it, was it valuable though to have exposure to like darkness as a yeah, child? Was it good in a way? Is, I don't, I don't know. Hey, and I think it's one of those things where it's like generational, right? So we're yeah. not going to know until the kids, you know, I can say our kids, I haven't got any kids, but like mm-hmm. my nieces and nephews, your kids, like whatever, kind of grow up and we're trying, I think every generation tries to do better, right? So sure, yeah. Like our, our parents were probably quite um, restricted by their parents in terms of what they could consume. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were yeah, trying absolutely. To let, they were trying to let us have what they couldn't. Yes. But having experienced that, we're kind of like, uh, I don't think our kids should be doing this. <laughs> Maybe dial it back in a couple areas. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and so, so I think the next generation is going to like, I think it's just different. Like yeah. they're going to have a different experience to us. Yeah. Um, and probably we'll get up there and be like, you know, they might go back the other way. Like every, everything old is new again, right? Everything goes in cycles. History sure. Yeah. Constantly. So it could yeah. be that this is just the generation that kind of has things kept from them. And I guess like our parents' generation knew the horrors of war and all that sort of stuff. So they, why the hell would you inflict that on children? And so yeah. like the opposite then for us and vice versa. So I don't know. That's probably part of it, but yeah. Yeah, I don't know that it's better or worse necessarily. I think it's just different. Yeah, no, I think that's, we have yeah. a different perspective. On right, right, right. That's a good point. Rather than turning into a dichotomy where we have to say better or worse, yeah, different often is probably the the most correct answer. Yeah, hmm. obviously, as long as no one's being, you know, traumatized by anything. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. A different experience. Now, now, Camille, do you think is there? Can you see any link at all? between um your interest your sort of like what seems to be a like a, a natural inborn interest in fantasy um mm-hmm. and you're eventually playing the bagpipes you know i mean it is an instrument and a culture that gets kind of mythologized you know yeah totally yeah i think definitely like um i i definitely like used to uh, like so my background is irish um irish and english so mm. obviously most white australian well every white australian was not ever from here um, so, <laughs> right so my, it's kind of a closed my, system you can pretty much <laughs> exactly. pretty much guess <laughs> trace it back to where you're uh, from yeah very recent generations here because i think australia this is something that always blows my mind when i go overseas so australia 
was first uh, colonised in 1770 and Australia did not become a country until 1901. So Holy we're very, moly. We're a very new country. Um, I didn't so, realise it was 1900s. My goodness. Yeah. So like when uh, the American Revolution was in the uh, 1790s. Yeah about, yeah, yeah, about the same time. Well, 1776 is the year that often gets referenced, right? Right. As the, but but yeah, yeah it, carry, it carried on for a while, yeah. But yeah, that's a war one for a while. Um, so like around the time that the American Revolution was kind of happening was around the time that um, uh, Australia was first, like white people were basically, well, arguably for the most permanent time because the Dutch had sure. kind of travelled to Australia prior to that. But um, yeah, like that was the first time that Captain Cook kind of, you know, very famously set foot on Australian mm-hmm. soil. Um, and so, yeah, so when I go overseas, like it's always fascinating to me that like, everything is so old oh like, yeah you just walk around in london and it's like oh cool i'm standing on a, a, a road that's from like 3000 <laughs> right because <laughs> it's like a roman road and these, yeah and you're just like what like how yeah. how does this even exist um so yeah I yeah not well. not quite to the exact same degree camille but i i al- i also often have my mind blown my, my wife is a history major she's a she's a, a really great historian and so she's a great reference for me to ask awesome. questions like i'm a very simple not uh, simple. I don't mean to seem, seem so de- self-deprecating. I'm just not, I don't have very much like formal education. I've had very little interest in sort of like reading and stuff until very recently. Well, so I'm kind of like a baby, you know? Formal education is overrated. Yeah, take that, <laughs> that universities. Universities. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed to say it, right? Uh, to be, I'm going to be perfectly honest though, like formal education means nothing if you don't have enthusiasm. So people mm. who are interested and have that thirst for knowledge run rings around people who have gone to university. So anyone, uh, having said that, I think formal education has its place and mm. it's definitely necessary in a lot of like in very functional careers for example like engineering and stuff like that like you, you can be an <laughs> yeah, sure. enthusiast but i wouldn't want you working at the thing i'm gonna be fired into the bloody right you, you don't you, you don't want to have a heart surgeon being like ah yeah. formal education who needs it <laughs> school of hard knocks mate. that's right i get it in practice on the streets <laughs> but i do think with stuff like this like you know um you know self-deprecating by the way is part of australian culture as well so well there i, I can resonate <laughs> with that for yeah, sure that's, that's very familiar to me but um the um I don't think in history particular, like it's something where if you're interested um, in a topic, you probably know more than someone who studied it mm-hmm. <laughs> and isn't interested. Yeah. 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 Well, well, my wife being both interested and having been well studied, I just like very often I'll, I'll I have these like little epiphanies where I like realize just how old something is, you know, and I go to her and be like, yeah. sweetie, did you realize? And she's like, oh yeah, isn't that amazing? And guess what else? 3000 years before <laughs> that, this was happening. I'm like, what? Yeah. The ones that always <laughs> blow my mind, there's this bloke I follow on um, Instagram called Idea Soup, I think it is. Oh, yeah. To be honest, he, he's like, I can't watch him early in the morning because he's way too like energetic. <laughs> like, like it like blows through the bloody um, phone. Gotta got let like your that. Australian coffee move through the yeah, through the system like, a little bit first to get ready for it. <laughs> to wake up a bit, but uh, he does this like he he basically just finds like mind blowing facts and like he's he's just like all this stuff that really excites him and he kind of shares it. But he's been doing yeah. a series lately where he kind of does like did you know how recently things that we take for granted were invented? Like mm. the Heimlich maneuver wasn't invented until like I think it was like nineteen. 19- 70 something no 1990 something really no it's the 70s and either way goodness heimlich heimlich was a lot like heimlich could have played minecraft (laughs) like that's how long he was (laughs) alive like he just like he does all of these like analogies like like, what (laughs) yeah that's crazy how could that be a thing yeah really cool that's like that's like the like the the pyramids in egypt being more like more ancient to cleopatra than cleopatra is to us yes kind yeah. of thing right oh yes that was go, another what? one the other day which was that people in 1980 were the same distance from world war ii as we are to 1980 wow yeah <laughs> what the I know. 
Yeah. And what's I think what's so interesting about that is because like we're all seventeen in our head, right? Like oh, for sure, you, for sure, like, yeah. You hit puberty and it doesn't matter how old your meat sack gets. Like yeah, precisely. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to like know I'm not the person. only one. I definitely feel no, like I'm seventeen. I think that's, yeah, that's the human experience. Yeah. Is like you, as soon as you have awareness as an adult, you're like obviously you would develop emotionally and all that sort of stuff. But we like, hope. <laughs> everyone has no idea what they're doing. Like, as soon as you realize yeah. that, life gets so much easier. Because oh, yeah. Like, everyone's just making it up. Like, We're all making it up. I did, <laughs> yeah, for yeah, sure. Making the best decision they can at the time. So it's always so confronting to, like, your ego when you hear state, statements like that because you're like, oh, I'm old. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, hang on, but, I'm, like, it's still 2003, right? We're still, like, oh, yeah. senior formal. And, like, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, people say, like, oh, 10 years ago, and I definitely think, like, oh, yeah, like, 1998 or, like, 2001. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you talking exactly. about, 10 years? Ago. <laughs> oh man what you like um now that like i see on um instagram reels and stuff now like kids are there was one where a girl like had invented like in air, i'm doing air quotes video yeah. on the radio but like um she'd invented squats and i was like <laughs> <laughs> excuse me like, you never heard of squats before <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> listen kid <laughs> yeah like, we've been alive so long that all these trends that we thought were so cool when we were kids have become trendy again it's like no <laughs> oh yeah yeah and, it, and that's that's one of the big challenges with, with clothing right my wife and i talk about yeah. it all the time that like i don't even know is what i'm wearing cool again i don't no. even is it i don't even know you, you, i'm like, disoriented <laughs> Exactly. Or you walk past like shops that you used to shop at and you're like, oh, I would never wear that. Oh, no. Right. Yeah. This <laughs> looks horrible. Why point. is it so expensive? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it was a big moment for me because one of the girls on my team is in her like, early 20s and she was joking about something. And I was like, Sash, I, I've hit that point where I've realized that like like dominant media isn't made for me anymore <laughs> that's a really confronting moment yeah and, like you start looking at like instagram reels and like like i you know occasionally jump on tiktok and stuff like that and i'm like i don't find this funny anymore like, <laughs> wait this isn't for me i don't understand this reference like, <laughs> like oh my god no it's happening it's like this moment of existential dread of like uh speaking, out, man. <laughs> speaking of the simpsons there's a great episode when grandpa and lisa are both sitting at the kitchen table and grandpa's like it sucks being old no one listens to you and lisa's like it sucks being young no one listens to you and then homer walks through the kitchen he's like i'm a middle-aged white male everybody listens to all my ideas as he's eating like a can of nuts and gum or something like that (laughs) (laughs) if i I ever do start a like simpsons review podcast camille will you be a regular guest on that for me 100 percent. perfect actually there's so many clever Again, it's one of the reasons that I both love and hate social media, but one of the things I love about it is like um, just how clever people are with some ideas in it. And there's one on there, um, there's an account that's solely dedicated to Simpsons versus the Liberals. And just, oh. again, <laughs> things, things not making any sense here. Uh, liberals in Australia are the Conservative Party. Wait, what? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the history of that makes sense. The Liberals were originally opposed to monarchy. So that's... <laughs> that's okay, they were okay. Actually, they were actually progressive when the party first... <laughs> Yeah, it's very much turned on the, the other way since then. Um, and they're very sort of um, right wing at the moment. And so there's this this um, uh, Is that right wing for me or right wing for you? Yeah. Does it work in reverse on the other side? Of the right, yeah. Like politi- Toilet bowl turns, that's what decides yeah, it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the political ideologies definitely kind of translate. Um, but um, yeah, so that the um, account's called Simpsons versus the Liberals. And they yeah. just do the funniest. They, they select, like, you know, Simpsons. 
uh, scenes to turn into memes about like stuff that's happening in politics and it's just so funny like, just they're so quick too like our um new south wales um has a liberal premiere and she resigned this week and within an hour of the announcement they were posting so much content it was just yeah. like, don't you people have jobs <laughs> how do you have both the energy and time ah, this is my to, job like, do, yeah exactly it just blows my mind but well it's, um, that's the you know i live with my parents so this is my job yeah exactly <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I mean, because of the pandemic, right? I'm definitely not uh, trying to speak ill of anybody in financial hardship, of course. Oh, no, I, absolutely not. But that's the kind of the situation a lot of us are in right now. So. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So now uh, let me spin this, just do a hard cut here, Camille. If you yeah. if you still got the time, can I ask you some more questions? Yeah, absolutely. Hard cut to waltzing Matilda. <laughs> You've been wanting to ask about this the whole time. I have. I've. I mean, I've been wanting to ask you about this for weeks, like since we first started talking about getting to their talk, because it's a tune that like gets played on pipe sometimes. So we got we got an yeah. excuse for it there. And you're Australian, so what's up with this song? <laughs> Is it like where do we start? When you were a baby, being fed Vegemite direct from a from a squeezy bottle, were you listening to Waltzing Matilda? Is that how prevalent it is in Australian society? It's definitely so. It's something everyone. It's one of those. Th- uh, where do I start? <laughs> like, I think a lot of, a lot of, um, every, every culture has its own, uh, mythology, right? Like it's, yeah. own, its own, and like Australia is a very new culture. So like, this is one of ours where early colonial settler culture has kind of been romanticized as this, you know, mm. this is the birthplace of Australian, you know, quote unquote Australian. Right. Yeah. So people have been here for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah. But don't like the, um, like this is one of those ones that, I don't know why this one in particular, and I actually think, because for those that don't know, so Waltzing Matilda, the elevator pitch for Waltzing Matilda is basically that it's a story about a criminal who steals a sheep and then drowns in a billabong, which is a um, dam, I guess, or like, what would you guys call it, a lake or pond? Well, um, I, d- I, d- <laughs> I guess, is it is it a naturally formed body of water or is it stopped yes. up on purpose? No, it's a, yeah. Yeah, a, a lake um, or a pond, I guess, yeah. Yeah, it's a pond, yeah. So basically, it's a... It's a I never knew a that. Stealing a sheep. I finally yeah. know. Okay, so a criminal stealing a sheep, drowning in water. So like, it, yep. so you mean an Australian going about his normal day <laughs> fell into some water, right? Is that well, what you're it's saying? It's funny you say that because there was a push for, um, like, our national anthem is called Advance Australia Fair, and most people overseas wouldn't know it unless you've kind of heard it played very orchestrally at... Um, you know, Olympics and stuff like that, mm. because it's not the catchiest of anthems. Um, and there was a massive push because it's very colonial. So the second and third um, verses, actually, no, sorry, the second verse, not so much. Third and, verse, third and fourth verses of Advanced Australia Fair are very much about, like, Britannia rules the waves and, like, uh. it's very, like, it's very, like, imperial sort of colonial yeah. <laughs> um, themes to it. And so when there was a big push for republicanism a few years ago, there were a number, number of um, tunes floated as kind of, like, alternative national anthems, and Waltzing Matilda actually won every single poll <laughs> what our national anthem should be and did um, they not if we, if you do that though <laughs> is, is, is this like Bodie mcboatface where like the people yeah. have spoken but uh we're not actually gonna do what they say <laughs> well it was more so we actually didn't become a republic so i see okay but, um, <laughs> but it was just so funny that it, it probably was exactly that like just because australians naturally take the piss like stirring is a love language for uh, yeah like um but i think it was also just that like waltzing matilda does genuinely have such like australian people love that song because it's so like when you're a kid you are like you do learn it in school yeah um, and yeah, like you learn the national anthem, you learn others, but I was actually probably in a bit of a unique position because my dad loves, um, like Australian and Irish folk songs. And so he would, he plays the piano and so he would often play tunes like this to make us sing the lyrics and stuff. Mm. And we were sort of three and four years old. So 
like I've known these songs since before I can remember. Mm. <laughs> um, and it's only kind of when you get to school and start like studying them that you realize what the lyrics are actually about. And it's that moment of like, oh, <laughs> like, <laughs> we were singing these stories about, you know, there's some about like, um, you know, convicts being landed on the beach and being lashed and like all this sort of stuff. Uh, and, yeah. You've been sitting there singing this as a six year old and then you kind yeah. of realize like, oh, hang on. Kind of a, <laughs> kind of a, r- r- a ring around the roses kind of situation. Yeah, where you're like, but no, oh, but I'm talking about seriously, like I caught, you know, 50 <laughs> lashes and like all this sort of stuff, you know. <laughs> It, like the like what is it the red ran into the blue like there's something oh, like goodness. very like very kind of graphic yeah like what why was i singing this as a kid but anyway you just don't question it i guess but uh, yeah so no waltzing matilda is a much loved part of like every australian knows it and it, it actually it's funny there's like that one and there's a couple of modern ones where if i hear them and i've been on an overseas trip for a while i actually get a bit teary get a little teary <laughs> huh i know that like my buddy swan went to a piping school years ago and there were some australians there and he, he did tell me it was like every day they're always like play waltzing matilda let's play waltzing matilda. like they never got tired of it it was just constantly waltzing matilda <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely and i think it's just such a like it's a it's genuinely a catchy tune like yeah um and it's a nice tune to play and like it's it's an easy four four and like you know it's an it's a nice tune on pipes as well it fits mm-hmm. well within the octave which a lot of um a lot of folk tunes don't necessarily true so, yeah um you know how you go to the horrible bloody octave jumping thing or there'll be one you know false note and you can't make it work on right the, on the bagpipe scale and all that sort of stuff so it's one of those ones that fits perfectly and you can kind of it's also one of the only australian folk tunes that still maintains like um like popularity i suppose mm. in terms of like there's a lot of Australian folk tunes where you kind of hear them and if you know Australian folk tunes, you'll know what they are. So we play Australian sets and you kind of play them. And even in pubs now, like you can play sets of three or four pubs, uh, three or four tunes in a pub here um, mm. and you'll end with Waltzing Matilda and people will know that one. But mm. not like any of the ones that came previously. You just make sure that's songs. your finisher then though, right? Yeah, always. <laughs> yeah, yeah you got to come in on a strong finish, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That so, makes yeah. sense. So that's the thing. It's, um yeah, it's definitely a part of our culture. Do you feel like there's a definitive... Um, recorded version like if if you could if you had to look at all of the you know sort of publicly available professionally recorded versions that exist and there are a lot yeah is there one that stands out to you that you really love no i would say john williams is a um he's a really famous um yeah star wars yeah no i was gonna say (laughs) (laughs) i'm getting i always get them wrong john williamson so john williams is the composer john williamson is the australian uh, so he's like an australian country singer and he's massively famous here he was he was very big into the late 80s and 90s um and he has a like really beautiful country voice and he does a version of it but i think i only like that one so much because it's the one that i probably listened to the most growing up so sure (laughs) to me that's like and i'm sure there's some amazing versions of it but um to be honest there's a there's a lot of like modern australian songs that are probably way more done that kind of have more cultural capital i guess with australians Mm. so there's one that peter allen wrote called i still call australia home that um like gets a lot of play and kind of a lot of cover versions and stuff done of it. Mm. Um, and it's a beautiful song, like really heart, heartfelt. And that's one where if I hear that on the plane, like if it comes on my playlist, I'll start crying. You feel like such an idiot. Cause you're like, I know I'm just like tired and emotional. I've been stuck in a bloody tin can for 18 hours. Yeah. Sometimes it's, sometimes it feels good. <laughs> you got to have that playlist ready. Cause sometimes it's yeah. really good to cry. So go yeah, ahead and so just go ahead and do get, it. Get it out. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but there's one that most people overseas don't know, but it's um, it's by an Australian band called The Seekers. They were this fantastic like Australian folk band um, in the like you know sixties uh, and seventies, and mm. they're still you know much beloved. But they wrote a song called "I Am Australian," um, and it's often considered like the definitive um, like modern Australian folk song, I guess. Mm. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's been attempted to be repurposed so many times, and actually, it's one of the reasons I love them so much is when they 
first put it out there, their big thing. And the one thing that they always said is that we will never license this for political use. So ah. no, no one can ever change this from being, you know, basically just a part of the heart of Australia. And, that was smart um, of them. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's been, it's been so many times it's been used at political rallies. And things I, you can, one can imagine. Straight onto yeah. It. yeah, totally. Because they, they said like, we do not want the intent to be twisted to that. Like it yeah. needs to stay pure. Yeah. Hmm. But it's, it's a very good tune as well. So I, I maybe don't know the right groups. I, I'm just thinking of like sort of like folk music from Australia. Um, I am thinking about one group that I listened to a lot in high school called Yothu Yindi. Are you familiar yes. with them? Yeah. So they're an ind- indigenous band. They were really big here in like the 90s. Yeah. Um, and yeah, what, uh, Treaty was one of them. Treaty. The- yeah. They had a radio yeah. edit of Treaty that was a big deal. So that was a, that was when um, indigenous people here were fight, fighting for land rights and things like that. So they they were pushing for treaty. And it's actually interesting aside the um, indigenous indigenous people in Australia have recently been pushing for another treaty, which mm. has been an interesting political thing to watch unfold. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, so Yothi Indi were really good. Men at Work are, are kind of often, of course, which is, yeah. which is funny because like so many of these, and it's interesting actually tying it back to the bagpipes that so many of these like famous Australian rock bands have Scottish lead lead singers. Yeah. So I think I think the lead singer of Men at Work is. Um, a Scottish bloke, Jimmy Barnes, who's one of Australia's biggest rock singers, who was the head of um, uh, Cold Chisel. They were a big band here, so he's Scottish. Um, and he's actually just started learning the bagpipes, and it's atrocious. Oh. <laughs> he's uh, obviously a learner, but he'll get on and like record these videos of him playing it, and there's the bagpipe, you're kind of listening to it and just cringing. And you're like, oh, yeah. thank you for giving it a go, Jimmy, but that's not what bagpipes sound like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's trying, though. Good for him for trying. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, he's giving it a go and trying to tie back to his heritage. And yeah. Good on him. Yeah. But, do, um, do, you, do you know the band called Brother? That's uh, out of, uh, ba- is it Bathurst? Bath- yeah, Bathurst is in, um, oh God, is that Victoria or New South Wales? My Australian geography can be terrible at times. They've got, well, it's better than mine. I was going to say, Australia's got like two cities, right? There's <laughs> Queen, it's it's uh, a, Sydney and... <laughs> I, I had to have this argument with a mate from um, the US the other day. So Australia is the same size geographically as the uh, continental United States. Really? So, yes. I thought so it was the, smaller. No, the map makes it look different. And I think with Alaska and Hawaii, you guys like just slightly pip us at the post in terms of uh. actual geographical area. But yeah, Australia as a country is exactly the same size. Well, you know, very similarly sized to the um, continental United States. Well, it's freaking so, huge then. Yeah, I hear people talk about place. going from, what is it? One of the, one of the cities is, is that one of the big places is down south and one is like northeast, right? Is that, or have I got that turned around somehow? No, 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 you're right. So there's, there's basically most of the population live along the coastline um, because the, the middle of the country is like an arid um, mm-hmm. desert. So, yeah. Um, and that's where kind of all the jokes come from about Australia being so hot and all that sort of stuff. And Australia yeah. is a hot country. Like it very rarely snows here, um, apart from parts in the very remote south but um, and mountains and stuff like that. But the um, major cities are kind of um, peppered along the state. So we only have six states and two territories. Um, Man, so and- a place as big as the country I'm sitting in right now, but only yeah. six states? Six states and two territories. But we have a tenth of your population. So uh, a much yeah. smaller country in terms of people as well. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, so, and we're basically spread out along the coastline. So the only major city in the West is Perth, which is on the Western, uh, Southwestern coast. Um, and then all of the other major cities are in the, um, like state capitals and things like that, but along the coast up the Eastern seaboard. So Mm. from Tasmania, which is kind of the Island at the bottom, then Melbourne's kind of right at the bottom Southeast, um, Sydney's sort of, um, yeah, middle Southeast coast, Brisbane, where I live is kind of middle Northeast coast. Mm. Um, and then you get some of the bigger cities peppered up towards the top. So Melbourne and Sydney are kind of the ones that people know. Canberra is actually a capital, which is just in from Sydney. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, 
that um, Darwin in the north is kind of like they're kind of like the Florida of um, Australia. I think <laughs> with like we yeah, actually. If I'm glad you guys have a Florida. That's yeah. great. <laughs> I think people have been, uh, I was talking to the boys in Vegas about it, but like um, Brisbane is kind of like, uh, if you had to draw an equivalent, Brisbane's probably like in Queensland is more like the Wild West. So we've got more of like, your, you know, um, authority, you know, yeah, shirking yeah. kind of like that sort of mentality yep. up north here. Um, and then down south is probably more like your like northeastern state. So they're a bit more, hmm. you know, cosmopolitan and, and whatever. Um but yeah, if you're if you're up for a good read, have a look at the NT News, so the Northern Territory News. They're a legitimate newspaper, and their headlines give you. They're basically, yeah. You'll see what I mean when I say the Florida. It, it's like it's <laughs> like our Florida man thing, huh? Like yeah. And I don't mean, I don't mean any offense, but like you know, I, I might have somewhat flippantly said something like Australia is the Florida of the world. So to know that there is, there's distinctions there within as well is good for me. I'm, I'm becoming more culturally rich as we talk. So that's good. I'll let, I'll let you know the secret, James. Australians generally are pretty hard to offend. So <laughs> <laughs> say whatever you like and in general, it doesn't bother us. <laughs> well, so that makes more sense because I, I have got this sense of like people like sort of like complaining or, or making a big deal of having to travel to and from Perth from other places, you know, yeah. and just being like, what? It's one island. Like, what's the big deal? You know? Yeah. No, it's a continent. I got to remember that. And it's a big yeah. one too. So Perth is the equivalent of from I think um, we worked out from Los Angeles to New York to fly. That's so, a, so it's pretty from, dang far from Sydney or Brisbane. Yeah, so it's like six and a half hours. And it's across yeah. just basically desert wasteland. It sounds like pretty much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> lots of lots of like big farming properties and stuff as well, yeah. like um, yeah. sheep and cattle farming, and like big like you know sugarcane and, and wheat plantations and stuff like that here too. But yeah, hmm. mostly um, just giant desert red <laughs> big red desert in the middle of the country yeah huh. now camille i know that you picked up the banjo a little while ago i did yeah <laughs> are you still doing that or is it falling by the very wayside spor- very sporadically i do still um so I, I got as far as sort of doing some roles and things like that mm-hmm. i was actually going to do it in conjunction with andy kind of challenged me so andy fusco um was going to um learn illum pipes because he had a set sitting in the same sort of thing as me i'd bought a banjo ages ago and never got into it so we kind yeah. of tried to g each other up to hey you do this and i'll do this and then he broke his reed and couldn't get another one. Oh so, yeah. So the motivation with having like an accountability side there, unfortunately. But um, mm. I just do still pick it up every now and then. My nephew's actually obsessed with it. He loves drumming on the um, the skin while I'm yeah. sort of doing rolls and stuff. So which is quite cute. So I often pull it out to play with him. But I, I have to be honest, I haven't in earnest been doing it. I've been a bit busy with them. Um, and I think it's, you know, that's an excuse because you prioritize what you are oh, sure, interested sure. in. Well, so, but you, yeah. you put out a book recently. I mean, you've got... I was going to say, <laughs> I've been a bit busy with freelance work, full-time work, writing yeah. a book and, uh, and learning to play the bagpipes. Yeah, you're busy with other stuff. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's justified. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. But yeah, no, I, I, I still do love it. I'd love to, you know, you, um, it's that classic thing of when you start learning pipes too, right? Where you kind of listen to music that you love. So I love Mumford and Sons. They're one of my favorite bands. Oh, yeah, love them. And um, early stuff too, where kind of, you know, they had the banjo as a big band. I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to be able to play that? you know yeah. or whatever um and then you kind of get into the you know learning videos and it's like now play this role ding, ding, ding. You're like, oh. <laughs> this isn't what i wanted i know, I know what i'm in for because i've learned to add a, like an instrument as an adult with the pipes but oh i know this isn't going to be a bloody journey and yeah. take a lot of work and effort so to be honest i've only been dallying in it recently there's a there's a local artist who does um like uh sort of like uh i think they're called tin types those like engraving um images um, uh, cool. yeah. And he did a, uh, uh, he doctored this, there's this old um, engraved image of, of the four riders of the apocalypse, or is it five? How many are coming for the apocalypse? I forget. There's four. Yeah, the four, four horsemen, horsemen, right? Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and he he calls the piece the four writers of the atonal apocalypse. And it looks just the same. But if you look carefully, you'll see that uh, one of them is holding drumsticks. One is playing a banjo, one playing bagpipes and one playing the accordion. Amazing. So you're, you are halfway through the list, Camille. So I, well, I haven't been interested in picking up the snare drum. So they... There you go. Drum will be next. Finish it off with an accordion yeah, and you'll so be. I can take off all the lists. Yep, that's yeah. right. <laughs> now. I'll add that to the list. How much, um, how long can I keep you, Camille? Are we pushing the limit at this point? No, it's Sunday morning here. I've got all the time in the world. That's right. How's the future? Is the future oh, nice? Yeah, it's pretty bright here. It's getting a bit warm. It's um, coming into our summer, so yeah. it's, um, yeah, going to be hotter than the face of the sun in a few months' time, but um, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, that, it's that sweet spot of like the shoulder season at the moment. So It's so funny. It's so funny that we're humans on the same planet because for me, it's Saturday afternoon. I still have some yard work to do because I'm cleaning <laughs> stuff up to get ready for winter. You know, like yeah, the, the, the snow is starting to come down on the mountains. The leaves are starting to die. But yeah, we're, it's, we're here at the same time. It's just, it's a simple it's thing, a, but it blows my mind. No, it is. And it's, I think it's one of those things too, where like video chatting and like being able to call, like, you know, I've got a, a lot of friends in the US now. And so, you know, I'll catch up with them, you know, by text, you know, every yeah. day, but like, you know, you kind of call them once a week and on the weekend and whatever. And just like, you'll see them and they'll be wearing like full jumpers. And like, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. You know, sweaters, I guess you call them. And like, you know, you're sitting there sweating in a tank top. And you're like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you're like how is this the same? Or like, they're, they're bitching about like, you know, I had to shovel snow today. Or like, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Like, I'm, I'm desperately trying to sit in the aircon and avoid like going to the shop so I don't have to go out and burn myself while you're right. like, and touching the steering wheel because it's so hot here. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I love, I love, I've got a friend who lives, who lives in Japan and I love, um, like just calling him like near sunset here and just being like, Hey, what does the sun look like over there? <laughs> you know, yeah. just, just tell me about it. It's just, yeah. it's just interesting. It is. It's, it's a weird, um, weird feeling, but you yeah, know, it's bright and sunny here. So it's, uh, just gone nine 30 in the morning. So hmm. yeah. It's now time. Camille, it's, it, it is good that Australians aren't easily of, uh, offended, but, um, mm -hmm. what about, what about New Zealanders? Because I want to know from you, an Australian, <laughs> what is the beef between New Zealand and Australia? I, it's an interesting thing, you know, like ki Kiwis and Aussies, we've, we've got, um, are you allowed to say Kiwis? Cause see, I would have said Kiwis instead of New Zealanders, but I didn't know if I was allowed to say that. No, I think you're allowed to say Kiwis. Okay. Okay. So I think Kiwis generally are pretty much the same. So we've got very similar cultures actually in that we we tend to be quite irreverent and take the piss and, you know, humility is a big part of our culture. So we call it tall poppy syndrome. We're kind of trying to, um, you know, tear people down if they get too big an ego. And all that right. Stuff. Yeah. That's a big thing here. So, um, you know, taking the piss and, you know, staring and all that sort of stuff is a big part of both cultures. But um, yeah, I think like Kiwi, we always joke that the Kiwis have a little brother syndrome. So like, ah. they're kind of like, they're like the... Uh, we almost joke and actually there was a movement when Australia became a federation um, that they should be the seventh state so um, <laughs> and then they became their own country so yeah very closely aligned very closely settled so same um, you know mostly um, our British UK kind of settled um, from overseas mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah in terms of the, the beef I think it's more just like a good-natured ribbing thing so is that what it is like yeah so we're both kind of like colonial you know offshoots down in the southern hemisphere kind yeah. of out on this little limb together um, and to be honest, I think it's probably more pronounced in Kiwi culture than Australian culture. So we love giving them it, but I think it's a little bit sensitive on their side. Ah, whenever, I see. <laughs> whenever you see like Kiwi shows and stuff like that, they always make a big deal about like whenever an Australian's mentioned, they're like, oh, bloody Australians. <laughs> like, you know, they, they always joke that we're these like arrogant, um, you know, big city kind of types. Right. Yeah. 
you know, think too much of ourselves and, and they're kind of like the humble, like underdogs. Whereas for us, it's kind of like, you know, oh, Kiwis are all sheep shaggers or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> we just take the piss out of them being these like yokel kind of, you know, island people with two heads sort of things. So, right. Um, but it's all very good natured. Like I've got a bunch of Kiwi friends who are like the best, like <laughs> do you, great people. Do you have so, bagpiping friends over there? Because from what I understand, there's a pretty strong piping tradition on both chunks of land, right? Yeah, that... I would argue, in fact, that New Zealand has a much stronger piping. Um, mm. and I'm probably going to get bloody eviscerated <laughs> for that if any Australian pipers hear that. But um, I like but New Zealand definitely has better bands. So they, mm. they have a number of great bum bands that kind of go over and compete at the World Right, we hear about those, yeah. Yeah, and they're excellent. So they, they have a really strong tradition. I think actually part of the reason for that is that they had a huge Scottish settlement um, on the South Island, which is... Um, so if you know anything about the shape of New Zealand, which probably a lot of your listeners don't, but it's kind of like, think about like an exclamation point, but in reverse so, and kind of chubby. So like the, the <laughs> bottom, chubby upside the down bottom exclamation long point. island is kind of, it's the bottom long island is Middle Earth basically. So that's, no, that's what I was going to say. Like I, I have a map of Middle Earth right here on my <laughs> yeah, wall. You don't even exactly. have to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the bottom island, uh, so the South Island is Middle Earth. Um, and then there's a very small island off the base of that. And then the top island is kind of like the cosmopolitan part of New Zealand where mm-hmm. all of their like major cities and towns are um, and so the bottom island is uh, South Island I should say is um, a lot of like farming communities and then a few sort of um, sort of medium-sized cities but the, the bottom island is so South I keep saying bottom island South Island is where um, a lot of Scottish people settle and that's where the, a big part of the New Zealand uh, piping scene is mm. and I think that's because just a lot of these like Scottish families similar to parts of Canada right where it's like you know, Nova Scotia and those sort of places yeah. where piping's kind of thrive where you know, the settlers came over and taught it and then it thrived from there. So, um, whereas in Australia, Scottish settlement was much more disparate. So, mm. um, I think that was probably a big part of it. Sorry, my neighbor's just turned on his bloody leaf thought. So we're probably going to cut a lot of, um, background noise. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's all right. But, um, yeah. So, so yeah. So, but, um, to be honest, personally, I don't actually know too many New Zealand pipers. The only New Zealand pipers I know are ones I've met through the dojo, oh. um, or who live in Australia. So, um, because the two, even though uh, New Zealand's only a three-hour flight from here, um, we actually don't travel there. So I've actually never visited New Zealand myself. Um, really? It's on my list, yeah. It's on my list to go to. But I think it's a classic thing of, like, there's actually big parts of Australia that I've never been to that I'd love to go to, like Uluru and, you know, a few very famous places like that. And I often joke to people overseas that, like, you probably see more of Australia than I have. Oh, um, sure. Kind of like... a tourist, like, yeah. Right, like people, like my neighbours probably haven't seen the Grand Canyon. Yeah, Kind exactly. of thing, like, yeah. Being, they were like you, you know you never kind of see the big stuff well you figure you figure fun. you will eventually or something right um yeah exactly like it's just something you'll get to and never kind of get yeah straight on to so but um yeah so i don't actually know many new zealand bands but there are a lot of pipers who play sort of in the queensland mm. um yeah like where i play um so in pipe bands queensland that sort of thing there's about 12 or 13 bands kind of locally who compete regularly at sort of our competition season and most of the better players in those bands go over to New Zealand for their their championships every year so there's definitely a strong connection I just personally have never kind of done it so Mm. yeah I see now Camille I'm curious and it probably would have been more fair for me to give you some time to prep for this but it's just (laughs) just I want to ask you about this like we talked about how like Waltzing Matilda is kind of like like that sort of like colonial heritage thing, you know? Yeah, I'm always going to bring it back to Waltzing Matilda, right? <laughs> so, so like, I, I just, I'm thinking about this. There's this local guy who I like listening to. He's got some podcasts and stuff like that. And he talks about, like, um, he talks about, like, social, social technologies. Mm-hmm. How, like, we need 
the family technology and we need it to do these things for us. And so when that technology breaks down, we have these problems and we have to find other ways to fix it. Right. And one of these things that he talks about is this idea of a um, sort of an ancestry technology. Like we all want to have some sort of some sort of lineage, some sort of story. And of course, we want it to be positive. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so like he refers, he uses this to kind of explain like, you know, for people who might have a hard time understanding how um, people in the Southern United States could be so adamant about hanging on to what to me seems like the wrong idea of what the uh, colonial or excuse me, the uh, the uh, now I can't remember my own words, the Confederate flag means yes. in the Southern United States. Yeah. He suggests that like maybe a more charitable or understanding view would be like, you know, like, let's not, let's not hold up racist symbology, of course. But if these people need to have their ancestry technology be something, right. It needs to do something for them. Yeah. It can be very difficult to have a negative story and have that be your only option. And so it might be a very human thing to seek a way of finding a, finding a story and making it positive as well. Yeah. I'm probably doing a bad, bad job explaining that, but no, it's interesting you say that actually, because it's that classic thing of like, and that's actually a common, common psychology trope that um, they teach to people with anxiety and stuff like that is that like everyone is the main character of their own story. Oh yeah. So yeah. Most of the time people aren't even thinking about you because they're, they're too busy <laughs> thinking about their own story. Right. Yeah. Like people who are worried too much about like what other people think of them. It's like this big, like, yeah, no one is thinking about you because everyone's thinking about themselves. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting you say that because I think it's more romanticization because we definitely have that here. So there's like, uh, there's convict Australian heritage and settler Australian heritage. Yeah. And like, it's actually an interesting, um, like parallel because people from Adelaide and South, so South Australia is called the free state in Australia because that's the only one that was only, only settled by settlers, free settlers. Um, oh, I see. Whereas most of the rest of Australia was colonized effectively by convicts who served out their time and then stayed in the colonies. So, Honestly, I thought um, the latter was the only way white people got into Australia at all. So yeah, that's news to me. <laughs> yeah, no, actually there's been a lot of like waves of immigration. We actually had a thing called a, um, was it a two pound or four pound? I think it was four pound pom. Um, so POM is a like slang term um, for British person. And so like in the early 1900s, they had this thing horrifically called the white Australia policy, which the government at the time basically wanted to bring white people over to preserve the purity of the Australian. Oh colony, dear. Basically. Yeah. That, any, anytime. Yeah. Speaking of. Yeah. My goodness. Anytime you're making, you're making po like political policy and the word purity comes up, you gotta yeah. stop for yeah. a second. One think hard. <laughs> <laughs> this, remember, this was around like before any of like the World War Two stuff had happened. Or eugenics was actually still considered like an emergency oh, yeah. thought and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so in context, I mean, it doesn't make it forgivable at all, but it definitely puts it, it makes it more understandable how it all yeah. happened. But um, the um, yeah, so they had these things called four pound poms, and the idea was that um, I think it was four pounds anyway, it was something pound pom. But they basically um, put out a call out to people in Britain and basically said like, pay. It was not very much so it would have been the equivalent of like 50 bucks in australian money or you know 20 bucks in Australia, uh, american money today now was um, australian money still gin because i know that for a while <laughs> <laughs> was that still a thing or not by that <laughs> had you moved on to coinage by then oh, well, that's definitely a legitimate like if you play a gig here and someone offers you a bottle of whiskey or something that's not and it, that's not something you'd definitely turn your nose up at um, but, um, so it's a legitimate form of currency, but no, so they, they tried to get free settlers out. So basically they wanted to inject the number of migrants they had with the right kind of migrants. That was yeah, the, the big yeah. thing. Um, but yeah, so they had these like, you know, four pound poms or whatever, where these 
families would pay literally four dollars at the mm. time and come to Australia to live. So, um, so there's been big waves of sort of free settler migration. But the convicts during the 1800s basically would be uh, transported from the UK out of their jails for often very minor things, mm. like literally stealing was something that you could be transported for. Um, so you can imagine as like a young, you know, <laughs> like starving, you know, Irish man or woman, you could be imprisoned for something that today we would kind of just, you know, you get a rap on the hand for or whatever, do yeah. a bit of community service, but they would literally be put in prison and then transported on a ship for several months off rough, over rough seas to the other side of the planet to live in grueling conditions for a few years until you kind of did your time and, you know, <laughs> served your moral purpose or whatever. And then now come back because yeah, exactly. you'll surely be a great citizen of the country now. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea was that like the, basically Australia was better. Like it was this emerging place where your criminal conviction didn't, you know, mean that you were subject to stigmatization in the class society. So yeah. basically you could make your own life here. So similar, I suppose, to the American frontiers in that way. Where people, yeah. And then we had the gold rushes and things that they found different mineral deposits that people got excited about and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, so no. So in Australia, we have that thing where kind of like you're either a free settler descendant or a convict des- uh, descendant. Um, but even the convict descendants, like any of that stuff is very romanticized here. So it's probably very similar to the Confederacy stuff for you guys mm. where, you know, um, criminals are well waltzing matilda is a perfect example of like criminals being romanticized right of, mm-hmm. like um you know a whole ballad was written about this guy who who's basically the scraggly you know drifter who, who steals the sheep off a farmer's property and gets killed for it yeah um but um we have like bush rangers so they were kind of like uh highwaymen i guess who who were um yeah like bad guys basically but they were painted as these robin hood types even though at the time they were probably just you know organized gangs of violent youths who are you know, um, fighting to get money and fighting against probably a very corrupt, you know, British-led um, government at the time. But, yeah, probably bad um, guys fighting bad guys, not so exactly, much. Exactly. Yeah. So not so much Robin sides, But it's this very, it's this very romanticized thing of like you know the ballads of Ned Kelly and you know Captain Starlight and like all of these like mm. they were almost the superheroes at the time who were kind of standing up to authority and then you know people who are descended from them talk up about you know oh well, i'm a direct descendant of ned kelly oh you know? uh, yeah like, <laughs> <laughs> well you know ned kelly's secret love child was my great great grandfather <laughs> like all this sort of stuff and you're like really like <laughs> uh, it's that it's that need to be connected to something i think and it does tie, it does tie interestingly back to the bagpipes and that whole yeah well that's 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 why i wondered about it because i i feel like maybe we experience something similar you you being where you are and me where i am where like I don't have to look very far in my own like sort of personal heritage to find a lot of mistreatment of native people, a lot of misplacement of native people. I'm living on land that was taken by other people from. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And so it's like, I want to acknowledge that that's not, that's not great. Right. You know, but like, there's surely something deep down inside of me that is seeking for some sort of positive story, you know, to spin about like how I got to where I am. And so I'm not saying it's good to ignore the ugly parts, but I wonder if to some degree the bagpipes end up being something like a vehicle, right, to carry me back to a different yeah. a different landmass and a different time so I don't have to think so much about the more difficult problems that are right in front of me. Is that yeah. part of the mythologizing effect? I don't know. Maybe I'm getting a little too loopy on this. but No, I think, you, I think you've definitely got to... Uh, I think for some people, definitely it is. And that's an interesting... I've, I've personally... And I think Australia generally, we don't like tend to identify with the heritage or white Mm. Australians don't for the most part generally that's definitely true um not to the extent that Americans do I think Mm -hmm. from what I've experienced so like Americans to me seem more likely to say like I'm 
Irish American or I'm Italian American oh, yeah. or I'm, the... I'm Scottish. But they won't even say American, right? Like sometimes they'll just say like I'm Scottish. And yes. You're, like, you're not though. You've never <laughs> been there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like you're, and like in America too, because it's been a country for so much longer. Like, like right, yeah. It was like literally eight generations ago. Yeah. That you had we 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 do really want hyphens though, as Americans. We yeah, all like yeah. yeah but yeah. what kind of American are you? <laughs> what right. Called them in Zoolander. It was like slashy. Like <laughs> <laughs> right. Like to be a slashy. <laughs> yeah, we love being More slashies. Slash actor, like, <laughs> Irish slash American. Um, but in Australia, that's not really a thing. So huh. like someone might say to you, like, "What's your heritage?" And be like, "Oh, well, you know, like five generations back, my you know grandmother was uh, sorry, my um, family is Irish." Um, so for me, example, I'm a, I'm a Australian sort of, I think five generations removed. So, um, and I called myself an Australian, like I wouldn't think of myself ever as being from anywhere, but here, because my identity is very Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me playing the bagpipes was just kind of like a fun novelty and I really liked the music. And so yeah. for that reason, I don't feel particularly, con- and I obviously have no Scottish heritage either. So I'm, I don't feel particularly connected to them through a family lineage journey, that sort of romanticized stuff. But I can see very easily how you could be. Like, yeah. And yeah. how that could be something where I think you're exactly right that people love to have that personal mythology and that personal lineage and feel like you're like, you know, personally tied together because I think fundamentally as humans, we all want to feel special. Yeah, so absolutely. Part of our ego is that we, 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 and not just that, but like in our generation, particularly we've been fed content like like every generation where there's been don't say something bad about our generation Camille come on (laughs) we're perfect (laughs) we've got it figured out but it's that like what do they say there's like seven archetypal stories like the hero's journey right one of the most popular ones right yeah it's for a reason it's because everyone thinks they're a hero like everyone wants to be the hero and so even if you physically or intellectually or through your interests or through your personality are very much like a sidekick kind of character, uh-huh. no one is any of those things because everyone is a three-dimensional human being who right. would never fit into the archetype of any of those things. And that's what makes life so interesting. But yeah. people tend to cast themselves into these different roles in a story. And so you are always the hero of your own story. And that's why so many relationships break down because both parties think that they're the hero. <laughs> both are the hero. So, why aren't you being a sidekick, exactly. Dagnabbit? I'm the yeah, hero. Exactly. <laughs> or even gender roles and stuff like that too yeah or yeah people of color or people with disabilities or you know people with diverse sexualities who have never seen themselves represented in those situations and so they yeah. have to cast themselves you know through a very you know filtered lens or whatever but um like it's just really interesting to me that like that internalizes of course it does because that's what we we consume all the time through media is like yeah you know that there's all of these stories where there's a hero and like the hero gets you know all of these benefits and has this like a massive personal growth and has a payoff and like whatever that is like you know um whether it's you know girls or or money or or whatever like you the the hero everyone wants to be that because you get something out of it mm-hmm. even if it's just the ego indulgence of everyone loving you um and so because of that people want to feel special <laughs> and so yeah and so they feel almost like they're owed that. And so that's why yes. you get people coming up to you at a, at a games or something like that. And like, they'll be saying like, Oh, what kilt do you wear? And you're like, Oh, this is McNeil and Barrett. Cause that's what my band wears. And they're like, Oh, is that your family one? I'm like, no. And then they're like, Oh, <laughs> my family wears such and such. And you realize the whole question was just like a segue into them telling you about, about them stuff. And it's like, yeah. dude, I don't care. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. like genuinely I couldn't give a fuck, but I'm happy to be polite. Cause you obviously want to talk about it, but like, it's just that, like what in that person's brain made them think that they should come up to someone and speak to them. And obviously it's because you're wearing something that they identify with and they want to share that with you. Yeah. But their way of sharing that is trying to 
position themselves as special because of how they are adjacent to that culture. Right, <laughs> that They have right. the broadest Australian accent. And, <laughs> you know, and you're just like, yeah, but you're not, though. <laughs> yeah, but you're not, exactly. <laughs> so I think that is, it's just inherently people want to feel special. And everyone does. Like, that's just a human yeah. nature thing. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it, it ties back to that whole you know, if you have a mystical lineage and like somehow this connects you to it, it, it cracks me up actually talking about the uniform and like <laughs> the whole, my very first episode on the Chanterant with Josh and Eddie was talking about the uniform and like basically just tearing it to shreds because I do hate <laughs> the uniform. Yeah. As I, well, you don't like, you don't like wearing men's clothing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that for a start, but also just the uniform itself is so ridiculous, right? Like, yeah. Um, and it's interesting, actually, I, uh, <laughs> I saw a friend post recently about um, she was planning to wear her Glengarry for like a wacky hat day at her work that they're yeah. having. Um, and someone, she'd said like, you know, do you think, you know, <laughs> do you think this is a good choice? And she was obviously being quite, you know, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? You know, trying to be funny. Yeah. Um, and someone had posted on there like, you know oh, the Glengarry is not wacky at all. Like, not a wacky at all. Like, it's, it's so sacred. And yeah, yeah. It was like this really, like, reverent, like, you know, the Glen is, you know, when you feel the breeze flapping. Oh, you know, that's yeah, what they, of and course. I was just reading this, just going like, what? Like, I put on the Glengarry and I hear the voices of my ancestors singing in my ears. <laughs> Sounds like Celtic woman. <laughs> yeah. it's just... No, like especially for an Australian, I'm like, give me a functional hat, mate. Like if I've got a wear, oh, one, yeah. I want something that's going to keep the bloody sun off me because that. Thing or at least not be like out. thick wool to keep all yes. the heat inside. Oh my god, no shade. <laughs> well, our competition season is usually during summer, right? So yeah. In summer here, it can be easily 40 degrees. Yeah. Um, which is what? what yeah. What do you mean by that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So between 100 and 110 for most of summer, um, and humid too, where I'm from. So. Like, I want something that's actually going to give me some sun protection. Yeah. <laughs> Not this, and, you know, the whole uniform itself is so interesting because as I've gotten more interested in parts and learning more about it, like... The, the uniform itself is entirely made up. Like, oh, yeah it's, not, yeah. it's not some historical, traditional thing that, like, the great Highland Pipers of, you mm-hmm. know, pre, um, you know, coloured and were wearing. Right. Like, we, we imagine, like, the McCrimmons standing yeah. on a mountain inventing Peabrook wearing, wearing exactly what we uniform. wear. Like, no, like, exactly. I don't think so. Well, probably number ones. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the you know, regimental, yeah, yeah, the red exactly. coat and the feather bonnet. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine anyone bloody in the jig? Yep, this is what I wear every day. That era wearing a red coat. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, seriously. Yeah, aside from the, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but like, I just can't even wrap my head around this idea because it was invented by a bunch of actually British, like English blokes who Mm. like formed what the London Society in the 1800s. So like, it doesn't have this like mystical history that people think it does. But But we give it one, yeah. yeah, but what interesting is that they don't want to dig far enough right, to right. find that out. Like, it's almost like, no, and, and it's that classic thing, similar with the Confederacy stuff, I guess, of like, if people actually confronted that, they would be appalled to be associated with it. But like, and not to mention the fact that it wasn't only around for like four years or something, like the Confederacy yeah. itself was really small time yeah. period that people... Yeah. And, well, and the flag itself wasn't even like a national flag. It was like a marching flag for like one one group right. out of uh, Virginia or something. I can't remember now, but... Uh... Yeah. People have just described this meaning to it. But isn't that yeah. interesting that people do that? Like, that they, they don't want to know more about it because they want right. the technology to be preserved. Because the more you know, like, people ruin everything. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> yeah. so, like, the more you know about something, the more you realize that these people that you're romanticizing aren't the heroes from the movies. They're just, right. horrible, and then, you know, that's, flawed human beings that we all are. <laughs> like, and that, that's exactly where I wonder, like, I don't, I don't have a conclusion on this. I just, I just, I think about it for myself all the time, like, 
is that then if you recognize that these people have problems or that the history the history is problematic or anything like that does that then ruin your um your lineage technology right yeah and so then it does something to you personally it harms your ego or something you know so well, you want to I think it definitely well and this is what what frustrates me because that's the sort of thing that i love breaking down because it's like if you mm. can't if you can't break that stuff down, how fragile is your core mm, yeah. that you don't have those fundamental core beliefs about yourself that will stand up to any scrutiny? Like yeah. if you can't even look at them and scrutinize them yourself, how on earth can you know who you are as a person? Mm. So people who cling to these kind of quite fragile, you know, um, bits and pieces, you, you know, of mythology and that sort of thing or, or romanticize stuff that isn't true mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and, and build it up to be something that it's not because, you know, someone said it once and then someone else said it and then it just became what it is like yeah um like how how on earth can you not want to question that because yeah. i feel like you're exactly right like the ego hit that comes from that of realizing like oh like seeing yourself as you perceive other people will see you <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's very confronting like where you kind of look at that and you go like oh like wow other people might think that i'm this or that that's one of the reasons actually complete tangent but that i don't like to like i like to have people who have different ideologies and thoughts to me on my facebook feeds (laughs) oh yeah you don't like getting into an echo chamber huh no the echo chamber is so harmful i think and like honestly sometimes i do mute people who are like so vocally like opposite to me that it makes me actually angry and i'm like oh my blood pressure's going up like trying not to comment on this so yeah (laughs) like like, just mute them for 30 days just so i can like you know build up some resiliency again but i think it's so important to always question what you believe because Mm. Otherwise, you do build up a mythology and then that can actually potentially be quite harmful over time, as we've seen from, you know, the rise in whatever it is like domestic terrorism in the US and here yeah. too, like we've had it as well. Um, yeah. It seems to have been very polarizing the last few years, like it's hit a real tinderbox moment in yeah. <laughs> the pandemic, I think, when everyone's been stressed out, um, you know, being locked inside and all that sort of stuff. Stressor like, on top all, of stressor and stuff. Totally. Here. All yeah. these other social issues come to the fore. It's really interesting. Yeah. Man, well, let's let's uh, let's get you started on another book, Camille. What kind of? <laughs> hey, how interested are you in psychology and uh, and pull yeah, pull yeah. your? Uh... I'm a bit I'm a bit with psychology, like you are with history, though. Where I'm I'm fascinated by it, but I'm such an armchair like yeah, <laughs> like enthusiast yeah. with it. So I've no I've no formal training other than a couple of um, very basic modules I did as part of my education degree. But um, hmm. yeah, I do find psychology fascinating. I find people fascinating, like group dynamics and the way that people interact and the relationships that they have with each other really interesting. So yeah, um, but yeah, I like to see how that influences, particularly for pipes, like how people learn and how people stay motivated and, and trying to use that as a positive thing. So figuring out manipulation for want of a better word, but how you can exploit psychology to, um, yeah, to make people more interested in, in playing and continuing to play and, and how you keep people interesting in, in staying in and growing a community. So, yeah. Drive. so yeah. Well, it seems like studies in archeology span could be somewhat uh, informing some of these interests that you have as well. Do you, do you feel yeah, like totally. that, that interest and also your formal training has an effect on you? Cause you do, do you, you do a leadership, some leadership stuff with your band, right? Yeah. So I, um, excuse me. <clears throat> I, um, yeah. So I'm pipe sergeant in my band. I was pipe major for a couple of months. So then I managed to, find someone and convince him that you should do it. You weaseled your way out of that one, <laughs> yeah, huh? It's so funny because everyone's like, why wouldn't you want to be pipe major? And I'm like, you have nothing to do with bagpipes. That's why you're asking uh, the question. Yeah. <laughs> like, no one wants to be the pipe major. It's the worst job. Um, and thankfully, Owen took it on. But um, yeah, so I'm I'm the president of my pipe band and I'm also the pipe sergeant and I tutor. So um, yeah, I basically run the thing and, and manage gigs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. That was my agreement with Owen in coming in. <laughs> he's, a, he's a very good piper, but I'd 
basically said to him, like, I'll do all of the organisational stuff because that's what I'm good at. You do all the music stuff and then we'll meet in the middle and form a perfect partnership and it's been working really well for a couple of years. So Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So do you, do you feel like you see a lot of crossover between your pipe band life and your, your interests life and your professional life and stuff like that or is it all in yeah. neat boxes? Yeah, no, definitely. Like nothing exists in a vacuum, right? Mm. And I'm, I'm definitely not one of those. But like I, I feel like the more knowledge that you have, the more that you should share it for a start. Yeah. Um, with people who are willing to listen to it, obviously, I don't think you should just start, you know, running around screaming advice at people like a crazy person. <laughs> um, but um, it's interesting, actually, how how much they've merged over time. So, like, I I used to be very much kind of like I do piping as a hobby, and I work, you know, at the time it was for like a um, publisher and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then kind of over the last few years, even just you meet people and kind of pipe bands. I've often joked to kind of like I don't know the Masons or something. Like you meet uh, yeah, so true. So lives, and it's such a secret. <laughs> Yeah. to the point where actually it was interesting like I was walking through um the uni so two stories actually I was walking through the uni um one day and the very senior kind of executive of one of the institutes at the uni <laughs> like stopped me and said oh hi Camille are you doing such and such I was work- walking with another girl from work she's like how on earth do you know Neville I'm like oh he's a piper <laughs> <laughs> and she, she was just like what like how are you as like a middle level, level manager kind of talking yeah. to executives from an institute that like has nothing to do with this really like, right oh, you know so you just know all these random people from around the place from, you know, every walk of life. Um, but then um, another funny story. So I, um, during the pandemic, so everything was in strict lockdowns here. I don't know what you guys had there, but basically you couldn't leave your house and the police would find you if they kind of came across you and you were leaving home for a um, non-essential reason. Yeah, um, I think that we've we've made attempts at that. Too, ma- too many people have guns. I think we couldn't quite, yeah. go quite so far. But <laughs> <laughs> kind of works against you in that Yeah. Um, but I mean, it worked for us. Like we've got zero COVID at the moment, which is good. Yeah, lucky. Um, but yeah, I know we've been very lucky, trust me. Um, but uh, yeah, so at the time it was like strict lockdown. So I had to drive from my house, which is about 40 minutes away from where I work. Um, mm. So I had to drive for 40 minutes. So that was a bit nerve wracking because I wasn't really supposed to be there. Um, but it was to film an Anzac Day video. So Anzac Day for us is like Veterans Day for you guys, I guess. Oh, okay. um, and so it was doing a bit of like a, we have a um, tradition here as part of that where you play at sunrise so it's usually a bugle or you play flowers of the forest on pipes at a dawn service mm. um and so we were recording a few days before bagpipes day uh, sorry before anzac day um to get some drone footage of me playing as the sun rose so it was like really early in the morning like i'm talking like 4 30 a.m mm. <laughs> um and so i've headed out to work and it's this, it's a sandstone university so if you picture like one of the american ivy league kind of places with these beautiful big kind of quadrangles with sandstone and stuff like yeah. that um so i'm standing in the middle of this <clears throat> so i was just sitting there warming up um you know the pipes and all that sort of stuff and then this guy randomly walks across and he was like a cleaner at the uni but he's like oh what band do you play for (laughs) um i play for you know brisbane uh, city brisbane uh, like and he's like oh i play for clan stewart i'm like what are the chances that like (laughs) the one other guy during a global pandemic right who's out (laughs) would be a bagpiper like it's just nuts like we literally are just everywhere it's crazy yeah well it is Um, like we do have like sort of like sets of sort of symbology uh sort of private language you know vocabulary we just need to develop some like uh some pipe band specific handshakes and uh we'll be there we'll be right there with the masons yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) and then we need to exclude some people that's That's important too (laughs) yeah yeah well you know we've definitely made it as a secret society well i i think it would it might be fair to say that we as a as a pipe, a pipe band, a larger sort of pipe band society, maybe we, maybe we've already achieved that and it's breaking down, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, well, it's been hard true. for women to get into pipe bands before, you know, for example. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we've already been there. <laughs> we were a very mature secret society. 
yeah, yeah, well, that's true, actually. We're getting there. <laughs> oh, well. But, um, yeah, so it, it was interesting, actually, how much um, that crossover between sort of what I do with um, piping and, and work has kind of come together. Yeah. Um, so when I said the Secret Society thing, so a, a bloke I met through doing the Chantaran podcast, actually, and kind of being on that. So I met a whole bunch of people who kind of added me or started talking to me as part of that process, which was great, actually, because I made a whole bunch of new friends. And, yeah. Um, yeah, new connections, which is always good, and you kind of meet new people and, and find out new things. But um, one of them was a um, bloke I've become quite good friends with, but he lives in Perth, and he was with the uh, National Association at the time, and he dobbed me into um, the head of our Queensland Association to say, uh, you know, you should get in touch with this girl because she can do, like, websites and, and content and, yeah. um, you know, media stuff and communications. And so he sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, like, basically, would you be interested in doing this for us? And then I got roped into doing that. And then through that, I've met some other people, which has led to more freelance work and all sort of. So it's just interesting how you should never say no to an opportunity because everything kind of feeds in. So I definitely don't try and keep things separate, like because yeah. it always leads to more opportunities. So well, the yeah. the book with Andrew Douglas seems like the yeah. a, a perfect yeah. example. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just fascinating to me, like how it's it's almost uh, like I'm I'm an atheist personally, so I could just out myself on that. But like I I don't believe in fate or any of those sorts of things. But it's always really interesting to me how like all of this stuff kind of seems to have these confluences of yeah. coincidence all at the same time. Like, yeah. and I can see how very easily you could think like, Oh, you know, this is the work of a higher power, like making all of this stuff come together. Well, Camille, um, how about this? If, if it's, if it's already a secret society, how about we start a bagpipe religion? Yeah. <laughs> I huh? love that. Huh? <laughs> Who would you, be on you, the you could be our first high priest. It would be the fir- <laughs> maybe the first religion, at least in modern times, that's ever been started based around a female priesthood. <laughs> We actually, I've, I've got a very good friend um, called Brad in Oklahoma, who's a piper. Um, oh, is this Beer Boy Brad? Beer Boy Brad, yeah. Yeah. He's a very good mate of mine. And, um, I don't know him. I just listen to Chandler Ant, so I <laughs> yeah, feel like no, I know him. <laughs> he's become a bit of a larger than life character. The yeah. Best person. I just love him. But um, he, um, he, he has this thing about um, basically that, like, you know, <laughs> religion has, like, um, you know, like, god daddy and stuff like that uh-huh. you know we, we need to have like a bagpipe daddy and like a bagpipe holy holy triumphant <laughs> triumvirate of like daddy and like jesus <laughs> we can pick all kinds of great bagpiping saints and and stuff yeah, like exactly. that too it's yeah like, you know, we need to have like a tone daddy and like, <laughs> a tone daddy <laughs> <laughs> just, uh, yeah. someone who we can pray to for our burls specifically yeah, exactly. and for our doubling yeah, specifically exactly. and <laughs> it, should, it should definitely be a multi-deity faith like yeah it's gotta be <laughs> there's way too many moving parts it's such a complex instrument we need to have it's, way, it's too much for just one yeah. benevolent being <laughs> uh, omniscient benevolent uh, or maybe not benevolent huh maybe we, we need we need we need the diversity we need the uh we need the opposition as well so we definitely would need to have some sort of like yeah tenor drumming devil character <laughs> i love it i love it oh would that be the drum major i don't know oh maybe it'd be the, the drum major you know the judge accountable yeah the yeah. judge exactly <laughs> judging your dress well there's already the flying spaghetti monster religion right so you can yeah like the i don't know flying scottish octopus there we go there we go <laughs> I like that because then we could somehow tie it into Cthulhu, and I always I always get yes. excited about anything Lovecraftian, so <laughs> that would be that great. great um, you got that great Cthulhu mask, don't you? That you I do, I do. So <laughs> give me an excuse to bust it out again. <laughs> I love it. <sighs> All right, well, Camille, I feel like the the inevitable place that this conversation was going to go to was founding a, a religion, and Amazing. so we've reached it. So good, good job. <laughs> I'll, I'll write the book. I'll write the book. Yeah, please do write our holy book. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest, Camille, I feel a little bit scared about some of the things that I said today, just because like, I don't, I don't know much about like 
I'm, I, I don't want to offend folks, but also like genuinely, I don't know much about like the, the complicated histories of, 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 uh, land grabbing and of, of and, and I mean, we talked about disabilities and all kinds of stuff. And yeah. so let me just say, I'm sorry to everyone for my ignorance. It's only I, ignorance. I promise. And I will say, I don't apologize for anything that I said today. And anyone who has a problem, feel free to get in touch. Yes. This, and this here, we have a perfect distillation of the difference between American and Australian sensitivities, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, thank you again. Now, would it bother you if I asked you how you feel about pineapple on pizza, Camille? That's kind of a thing I ask a lot of people about. Not at all. It's funny, actually, because, like, pineapple is a huge um, thing here on, like, we put it on burgers with beetroot and stuff Ooh, like that. So, I love that. Like, an, an Aussie sunrise burger is where you have, um, like, a steak with uh, pineapple, beetroot, and a fried egg. With now, wait. lettuce and, and sauces and stuff. That's a That's a burger? Yeah, it's called an Aussie sunrise. So you tuck that on a, you know, oh, sorry. So you have bread and stuff with it too, obviously. Oh, yeah, sure, um, sure. But the yeah, burger yeah. is steak and yeah, so pineapple steak, and beetroot. Yeah, so steak burger with pineapple, beetroot and a fried egg. I'll... Usually tomato sauce or barbecue sauce, depending on your preference, um, which you guys would call ketchup, I guess. And yeah, I come know, on. I don't know. What you, do you have barbecue sauce? Oh, we have barbecue know. sauce. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> come on. Um, so, Actually, the one of the better barbecue places here in town is the is Australian themed at least is that outback steakhouse is that not outback steakhouse no, okay. i'm not that <laughs> kitsch that come one. on <laughs> <laughs> i'm actually disappointed that i never went to a, i've never been to an outback steakhouse in the u.s but on my next trip i wrote down maybe it's really great i don't know i just kind of assumed no. that it's not but maybe well, it's when spot one of my on remember they told me they're like oh um do you guys like is that like it's the blooming onion really <laughs> yeah. staple part of like what you guys <laughs> right. eat? And I'm like, I've literally never heard of that. In That's what life. you have Christmas morning, right? You got to have a blooming onion. <laughs> I was just like, what the fuck is a blooming onion? I looked it up. I was like, oh, okay. No, this is not a thing. <laughs> I mean, it sounds delicious. I'm oh, yeah, they're good. Try, but, they're good. Yeah. But uh, no, we definitely don't have that. But uh, anyway, pineapple and pizza. Um, so personally, I love pineapple juice. I love like just eating pineapple out of a can. I would mm. never eat it on a pizza. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. I don't know why. I what's your know. so? What's your go-to pizza then? Uh, oh, meat lovers usually. Yeah. Or some kind of like capriciosa, like chuck some olives on there with something. Mm -hmm. We're good. Oh, and lots of cheese, obviously. Yeah. Um, actually, there's a wood-fired pizza place near me that does an amazing potato pizza, and I'm like anything where you can double down on carbs. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah. That. Like that's that. If you want to talk about heritage, that's the Irish coming out of me. Like I need all the potatoes all the time. <laughs> right. <carbs>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So they chuck potato and pancetta um, with cheese on pizza. That's that sounds really great. Thing. I've only ever had one pizza with potatoes on it, and interestingly, it also had pears on it. Oh. But it was really good. I really liked it. Yeah, I've never tried pears on a pizza either. But yeah, yeah usually pineapple pizzas here are from like a 